to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? You will be able to keep your doctor. If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chicky Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917-889-3675. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is Common Sense. Don't be a victim. 
survive whatever this administration is going to throw at you and avoid the government food lines. So once again, go to my website, Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, and be prepared. All right. Welcome back to another exciting adventure on a messed up technical weekend, Memorial Day weekend here live on Southern Sense. You're listening on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media. Uh, I would say YouTube, but I am now officially banned on YouTube. I have gotten three strikes against me. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, God. Um, hey, Elon Musk, here's another company for you to buy um, up on Facebook. But you can also watch live on my website. Just simply go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, where we have a chat going up on there also. So feel free to take a walk over there if you want to see my smiling face. Oh, man. You just, you just can't make some of this stuff up. And for some That's reason. True. Oh, there we go. There That's we go. So there we go. Man, we've got ourselves, uh, Curtis. Oh, yes. I mentioned my co host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. I'm the hostess. Yes, that will be me. Hostess. <laughs> I, I was waiting in the wings for my introduction to come out on stage. Well, I didn't even introduce myself. <laughs> the radio oh, chickadee, Annie. <laughs> Oh, man, it's going to be a wackadoodle day today. Absolutely wackadoodle. But we've got ourselves a great lineup. Andy Berger is going to be joining us uh, once again. You remember her as Voices Against Trafficking, uh, who as a young infant up until the age of 17 was trafficked by her own family, her mother specifically. Uh, And she's now fighting to uh, help release these individuals that are being human trafficked. Uh, we have uh, Derek Bolin. I'm hoping that we're going to be able to get him, Curtis, because his call is coming yeah, out of Canada. Yeah, so, yeah, so we're going to see. He's got a new book out, In Defense of Wealth, A Modest Rebuttal to the Charge, The Rich Are Bad for Society. Well, you hear that all the time. Spread the wealth, you know, tax the rich. Uh, we're going to be talking to him about that, as well as Bidenflation. Uh, and we have my... <laughs> Uh, we have our friend Mark Tapscott from the Epic Times and Hill Faith. He's joining us. His uh, twice a month visit to us. And we're going to finish off with Heritage Foundation, my favorite guy over there, Hans von Spakovsky. <laughs> so I'm glad you have to, to pronounce these names. I, I would have problems with that last name. Oh, no, just okay. Spakovsky. Yeah. Oh, okay. oh, man. Uh, so, as I said, we've got a lot to do, a lot to talk about, and things to work on. Um, those that listen to the show know that we do a dedication to a fallen hero. But before we do our normal dedication, uh, this was sent out uh, a letter from Gary Sinisi uh, to people that are supporting American Veterans Center, which you can find at AmericanVeteransCenter.org. And Great he's talking... Yeah, he's talking about the National Memorial Day Parade in Washington, D.C. And uh, I'll use his own words if, uh, if I can try to get him back on the show. That'd be nice, too. Uh, Gary Sinisi writes, You may know me from my roles in movies like Apollo 13 and The Green Mile, but the role that changed my life and ins- inspired my enduring connection to our defenders, veterans, and first responders was as Lieutenant Dan in Forrest Gump. This year, I'm honored 
to again serve as the honorary Grand Marshal for the National Memorial Day Parade in Washington, D.C. The National Memorial Day Parade is an event like no other. And this year, the American Veterans Center is bringing it back in full force with 5,000 and more participants marching down Constitution Avenue before a crowd of over a quarter million in-person people, as well as TV broadcasts that reaches 100 million households around the country. When the American Veterans Center first called me more than 15 years ago and invited me to the National Memorial Day Parade, I was honored to join the event to remember our fallen heroes. The American Veterans Center revived the parade in 2005 after it had been dormant for nearly 70 years. Now, in 2022, they're bringing the parade back to its full-scale glory after two years of pandemic precautions. Every American should be proud that generations of our brave servicemen and servicewomen, from the last of our greatest generation heroes of World War II to our veterans from Afghanistan and Iraq, will get the public thanks for their service that they deserve this year. But I know that the defenders and families of the fallen who will join me in the National Memorial Day Parade will be thinking of their friends and loved ones who made the ultimate sacrifice for our country, the brave Americans we honor on Memorial Day. Sadly, our country is losing hundreds of World War II veterans each day. So the mission of the National Memorial Day Parade is more important now than ever, as this year's event may be the last opportunity for our World War II heroes to commemorate their friends who never came home. The National Memorial Day Parade costs a fraction of other major public events to put on each year. In fact, the entire parade costs about as much as just three balloons in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade or two floats in the Rose Bowl Parade. That means that every dollar that is contributed by a generous American like you makes a difference for this important event. Your support of the American Veterans Center not only helps the parade, but also supports great programs like record hundreds of oral histories of veterans from World War II to today before we lose these stories forever. Hold our National Youth Summit, which allows young students a chance to hear firsthand from the veterans from World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. Produce veteran-focused TV documentaries and specials that remind Americans the price of freedom. So please join me in support of the National Memorial Day Parade with a gift, whatever you can donate. But no matter how much you can give to this important cause, I want, you, I want to ask something additional of you. On Memorial Day, this year, and every year, please join me in honoring those who made the ultimate sacrifice for our freedoms. Come to the National Memorial Day Parade in D.C. Visit a local veteran cemetery. Send a note to a family of the fallen or simply take a quiet moment to think about the men and women who gave their lives to defend our country. 
I believe we can never do enough to express our gratitude to our defenders, veterans, and first responders. But we can always do a little more. Fellow American, thank you for your support of America's heroes. And please, if you're able, make a gift to help fund the National Memorial Day Parade right now. Sincerely, Gary Sinisi, Honorary Grand Marshal, National Memorial Day Parade. This weekend is Memorial Day, and people celebrate with barbecues and uh, sales at the local stores or whatever. But very few people stop to ponder what it really means and what the sacrifice was that gave us this country and what is at risk if we don't help defend it. With that said, I ask you to go to the AmericanVeteransCenter.org and make a donation. Listen to some of the stories and do a small part to keep America great. With that said, every show is dedicated to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is going to go out to Deputy Sheriff Dominique Kalanta of the Pierce County Sheriff's uh, Department in Washington. His end of watch was Wednesday, March 16th of this year. And this is from CBS News. One of two Pierce County Sheriff deputies wounded in an exchange of gunfire as they tried to arrest a man south of Tacoma, Washington, has died, authorities said. Dominique Dom Kalata, 35, died following Tuesday's shootout in Spanaway, according to a statement from the Pierce County Sheriff's Department. The News Tribune reports Kalata was taken to St. Joseph's Medical Center in Tacoma after the shooting. He had been with the Sheriff's Department for more than six years and was in the National Guard. Before that, Kalata served five years in the U.S. Army. He graduated from Pacific Lutheran University and was married and had a four-year-old son. The Sheriff's Department shared a video of Kalata reading a children's book for what the department called story time with the sheriff. Kalata, who said he was working the graveyard shift, chose a book called Moon, Tuck and Trump. Quote, it happens to be my son's favorite book, and he's also obsessed with the moon, unquote. Kalata said before reading the story. The other deputy was identified as Rich Scaniff, 45. Scaniff was in serious condition after surgery at the St. Joseph Medical Center. He is expected to survive. Scaniff had been in the department for 21 years. He is a patrol sergeant assigned to the Mountain Detachment and commander of the SWAT team. Scaniff is married and has a daughter in elementary school, officials said. These are guys who have a heart for public service, Sheriff Ed Troyer said. It's a tragedy all the way around. The suspect was killed in the shootout. The deputies were helping the South Sound Gang Task Force serve a warrant to a 40-year-old man wanted for second-degree assault. The man, who police said had prior felony convictions, was believed to be a candidate for the Free Strikes Law which means he would have had to face life in prison if 
convicted. County Sheriff's deputy passed away after a shootout while issuing a warrant in Spanaway. Leaves behind a wife and young son. The Pierce County Sheriff's Department has established a memorial fund in his honor. A legacy fund has been established in memory of Deputy Dom Collada. This is the official legacy fund and is created in partnership with the Tacoma Pierce County Crime Stoppers. 100% of all funds will go directly to Deputy Kalacha's wife and young son, a Pierce County News release read. A link to the fund can be found on KTTH Radio. They write, we'll take anything from $5 all the way up to what anybody wants to give. Pierce County Sheriff Ed Troyer shared with KTTH's The Jason Rance Show. Every penny matters. We want everybody to feel like they were able to give and be part of it. And we will acknowledge every donation and the family well. They'll appreciate it. He shared some details about Deputy Kalata's life, that he was only 35 years old. Dom was one of our typical age deputies that are out there taking care of business, the sheriff continued. He spent six years in the military. He was in the reserves for seven years. He was his ASB president in high school and was a guy that just always knew what he wanted to do. He wanted to serve people. He wanted to serve his country, his community, Troyer said. Being on the department for six years, that's relatively kind of short, and being able to make it as a front man point guy on our SWAT team shows that you have a lot of experience. He also had a soft heart. Today's show is dedicated to Deputy Collada. It's also dedicated to all the brave men and women out there that serve as our first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. It's also dedicated to all the brave men and women that serve in our military from the birth of this nation through today and into our wonderful future. We dedicate to them this song by Todd Allen Herndon, My Name is America. May God bless each and every one. Born in the grip of oppression, I fought for my liberty. I paid with the blood of my people. Freedom has never been free. Now my door's always open to dreamers and friends. When I'm attacked, I protect and defend because my name is America. I stand proud and free. My name is America. Don't tread on me. I cannot be broken. I cannot be shamed. If you hurt me, I'll get stronger. And I'll rise up the flame. I'll always stand proud and free. 
of going to the uh, uh, the convention because of what happened in Texas. And uh, if anything, is a good example why it's important for a good guy to have a gun because it was a good guy with a gun that took out the shooter um, compared to, you know, bad guys having the guns, you know? Anyway, um, Trump is supposed to be addressing the convention, but uh, Governor Abbott was supposed to be there, and he pulled out. Um, There's a protest that's being planned. Uh, He's not going to be there live in person, but he will send uh, Governor Abbott a pre-recorded video remarks to the NRA event. Um, Beto O'Rourke, who's running against Abbott this fall, is planning to attend a protest outside the convention along with several anti-gun organizations, which could explain why a lot of people are starting to back out because they don't want to get stuck in the melee. Some of the others who have pulled out of the convention since the shooting include country singers Larry Gatlin and Don McLean. It's a shame that, you know, you have a tragedy here, and they make it a political uh, issue. Instead of wondering what went wrong and how do we prevent this in the future, because there was no armed guard at that school. Well, why wasn't there? And if this person... Uh, was known to be a loner and having other issues, why wasn't anyone keeping an eye on this kid? And why is it that my videos for the radio show get pulled down off of YouTube, but his postings saying that he's going to kill his grandmother uh, were not perfectly okay, but me questioning election integrity is misinformation and causes me to be banned. Something's upside down and backwards here, Curtis. Something is absolutely upside down and backwards. It is. And from what I understand, you know, this kid got in because somebody left a a door unlocked Uh or open. And, um, I mean, he did acquire the weapons legally, but Mm -hmm. he should have been tagged as a mental case long, long ago. And not only that, now the controversy is is um, that the local police were ill-prepared for this. So they waited 40-something minutes while this guy was in there. They were wait, waiting for tactical backup. And it was the Border Patrol that sent a, a specialized team there to take this kid out. You know, the parents were there begging them to do something. I can't imagine just standing there as these people were being slaughtered, wholesale slaughtered. He barricaded himself inside the classroom. The parents were asking them to smash the windows so they can get in there and help get some of these kids out. Do something. You don't stand around there. You are sworn to protect and serve, and this really disappoints me. This really, truly does disappoint me because I know what my partner and I did. I mean, we had a wounded officer at one point, and emergency services would not go in there to get the officer. My partner grabbed the uh, gurney straight from the EMS, and she grabbed another cop and went running straight in and got this guy out. That's what you're supposed to do. 
And if there's young kids, there's, there's innocent people in there being slaughtered, you don't wait 40 minutes around for SWAT. There's got to be a That's huge right. investigation on this one. And whoever is responsible, whoever held those cops back, not only should be fired, but should be held criminally liable, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And that's just not right. And not I heard right that they were were poorly trained and stuff. But then I can see where all this defund the police factors in, too, you know, when they, they want to take money from police budgets and things like that. And this is exactly why they need uh, influx of, of funds so they can get these training, get the training they need, get the body armor they need, the shields. Because my understanding is that they lacked a lot of this stuff in this small town. You know, it's, it's, it, uh, they'll eventually break it down and go moment by moment exactly what went wrong. But what happened to uh, the family members? Uh, the school guidance counselors, the teachers that interacted with this kid prior. There had to have been red flags all over the place. And how was it missed? Oh, wait a minute. It's more important to push transgender and sexual deviation on our children than looking out for an individual that may need some mental assistance before something like this happens. You know, our education system is focused on the wrong things at the wrong time. And what happens? That's right. And what happens? They have demonized guns to the point that they have these gun-free areas or zones, and, and it's a soft target, you know. Um, there were parents that, that had permits to carry in Texas, and they were saying, look, you guys ain't going to go. Let me go. That's my kid in there. And the cops wouldn't let them go. They would have uh, had to tase me or shoot me. I would have went. Now, I, I saw an article, and I did not print it out. So if anyone out there saw it also, there was an article coming out of Texas that some of the parents were actually handcuffed because the cops did not want them going in to rescue their own children. How do you do that to I a mean, parent? I mean, the madness of that. Mm-mm. I mean, no, they, they most police officers on their squad car, it says to serve and protect. Well, That's not Curtis, standing by isn't serving and protecting. Standing by no. waiting for some tactical team from like 100 miles away to come. Well, it looks like you may have to call Andy in because she's not calling in. So if you do All that, right. we, will take will do little, that. we will take a little bit of a break. And uh, here we go. Let's get a little of this. If we can get this up and running. Big dawn. Big dawn. Every morning on time, you can see him arrive. He stood six foot three and weighed 235. Kind of broad at the shoulder and fast with the lip. And everybody knew you didn't give no shit to Big Don. Big dawn. smoke of this Democrat hell walked a giant of a man that the Patriots knew well, grabbed a sagging economy and let out with the groan, and like a mighty oak tree, just stood there alone, big dog. 
talking about our man Donald Trump. He's the president now, and all you chumps can just settle down and stay in your safe space. We're about to make America a better place for Big Don. Big Don, Big Don, Big Bad Don. Old Don got to work because we got problems to be solved, and the Democrats shouted, the Russians are involved, brought out their special counsel with Robert Mueller. Too bad the wall just got ten feet taller with Big Don. Well, they will lie and cheat and steal and threaten and pander to illegals before our veterans, but we're over these liberals loading our country in a hearse. It's about time to put America first with Big Don. Big Don. Big Don, Big Bad Don. We're going to put these criminals where they belong. We got people like Hannity and Julian Assange and all the centipedes following QAnon. And Americans like me just singing my song for Big Don. The path ain't easy because the devil's working hard, but we got God on our side and he's playing his trump card. Just remember my countrymen to always stick together. Fake news can't stop us from making this world better with Big Don. Big Don, Big Don, Big Bad Don. When it's all said and done, America will be great and we'll build a statue just to commemorate a great man with these words on the slate. Thanks to the people's power, a man came from his tower to save America in its final hour. Big dog. Big dog. Big dog. Big bad dog. All right. Uh, looks like we have a little problem here, Curtis, with our guest. What happened? Well, the phone just rang. I didn't even get a chance to leave a message. There oh. was no answering service, so I don't know. <laughs> All right. All right, so I can ask I exactly twice. what's going on. Ah. All right. Yeah, I just will end up sending her a message. Um Okay, just uh, called twice. No answer. Probably caught in traffic somewhere. Don't don't have a good connection. Mm Mhm. It's possible. But anyway, back to this um, school shooting. I'm telling you, they they like I said, they would have to tase me or hit me with rubber bullets or whatever. But I'm going in, you know. I have to go around the back and, you know, just go commando. <laughs> you know, uh, there's just one time that I ran into a gunfight and I actually drove into it, actually. Uh, I was doing a midnight with uh, one, of the, one of the rookies and uh, all of a sudden you hear, pop, 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 pop. And like, uh-oh. And you <laughs> pick up the, the radio, shots fired. Effing shots fired. 
and he's screaming into the radio, shots fired. I'm laughing. I'm the one driving. I'm laughing as I turn into the crowd that was rushing at us. And you can actually see the shots being, you know, from the car that he was shooting at and from the guy standing on the curb shooting. I mean, he's, he's, he's in a lime green Miami Vice suit in the middle of March in New York City when everyone else is wearing dark clothing and parkas. How could I not identify this man as a shooter? Every time I think of this, every time I think of this, you know, I, you do. That's what you're trained to do. You go head on in without thinking about your own safety. A gunfight going on in the middle of a crowd as the, this crowd was leaving a popular nightclub. It was packed. The streets were packed, and shots were just being fired back and forth. Thankfully, no one was hit. No one was hurt. But you don't stand outside while you're watching innocent people being slaughtered. You know. I mean, if, think about this. What fireman in New York during 9-11 would stand outside waiting to see if the building was going to fall before they went in? No, they went in right away. I lost three friends, the cops that I had worked with. I lost three of them on 9-11 because that's what they, exactly what they did. They went in and they never came back out. I believe the total of 27 law enforcement officers had lost their life. The most life lost in the first responders were the fire department. You're right now, about you that. You don't stand outside. Matter of fact, a dear friend of mine, uh, their son had retired to Florida. After 9-11 happened, he left Florida, came back to New York, and helped at Ground Zero. And you know what his, his price for that was? He's Did he got, get cancer? He's got, his, he can barely talk. He can, he's on oxygen, and he's younger than I am. Yeah, he got cancer or something. And I spoke to his mom. I saw her in the grocery store the other day. And she just, it breaks her heart just trying to talk to him on the phone because he could hardly talk on the phone. And that's what our first responder does. But disregard to your own personal safety. You do your job. You know, and, and I, I'm embarrassed to say that, you know, they're law enforcement officers. If, if what I'm seeing in the news is true and there has to be a thorough, thorough, uh, investigation, finding out what happened, what went wrong, and who was responsible for what. Why was that door left open? Why was he allowed to walk onto the campus to begin with with a firearm? I thought there was supposed to be you know, gun-free zones. Why wasn't there armed security inside the building? Why didn't anyone say that this guy has a mental problem? You know, the, the, the quick to wave the red flag laws on legal sane gun owners. So why wasn't this guy uh, taken care of? I don't know, but it's a tragedy, and it seems like some people didn't learn from Parkland in um, Florida. Um, Remember the one one patrol officer? He might have even been assigned to that school. He didn't go in. He was waiting for backup. And boy, did he get excoriated? I I don't know. He might have he might have lost his job. I do believe he did. I do believe he did. So. But you go win. You know, the one thing the military train you to do 
is to uh, respond to incidents, you know, that may be threatening to others, but, you know, you're trained to go towards, you know, danger, especially if your, your buddies and stuff are in trouble, especially our special forces guys. They, they don't run. They go into the, the firefight. And I think they need more training with police officers in that scenario, even if they have to use live ammunition and things like that, you know, because um, when we're in the military, we train with live ordinance and stuff, so you get used to the sound and stuff. They even train the dogs that go into combat um, to, to be used to, you know, firearms going off and, and, and bombs blowing up. And they train them, you know. Why can't we do that with our police? You know, we send all this money over to to um, to other countries and stuff to protect their borders and and to save their souls, but we won't protect our, our children. It's just ludicrous. Yeah, yeah. And I do, you know, feel sorry for the Ukrainians, but still, we send the money over there, and our schools are left vulnerable. And then they're still going to try to blame this on the NRA because the door was left unlocked. So somehow NRA and conservatives and Donald Trump is our fault. Yep. Like I said, we're going to have to have a thorough investigation, and people are going to have to be held uh, accountable. Very simple, very simple. But yet, already, the Democrats in Congress are putting in there, with the Department of Justice, a national uh, licensing for gun owners. No longer according to what your state wants, but it'll be national. So... In order to even buy a firearm, you have to register with the Department of Justice first. Prove your registration. You can then purchase the firearm, but you have to take so many classes and do all this and that and jump through all these hoops. They're going to try to make it so hard for anyone in the United States to ever own a gun again if we are not vigilant and legally own a gun and responsibly know how to handle it properly. You know, it's not going to happen. I mean, every time we have a mass shooting like this, <clears throat> the Democrats go for the same same argument and um, this push to um, restrict our, our guns while they're surrounded by guns to protect themselves and their families, as well as walls, too. Walls do work. But the thing mm-hmm. is this, you know, we have got to stop blaming, putting the blame at the the foot of everybody else except for the person that initiated this this tragedy, and that's that Mm 18-year-old and whoever left that door unlocked at that school and and whatever else they didn't do right. I mean, we we had nothing to do with this NRA. You got the president out there blaming the NRA and dividing people again because of his rhetoric. This is a time of tragedy. You're not going to bring people together if you're going to sit there and and excoriate one side of the aisle. Well, now, watch also now the rise again once more of red flag laws. They're going to use this to bludgeon us with red flag laws. You already have that rumbling. This Department of Justice legislation the Democrats are pushing through, they've tied in 
a national red flag law, you know, which means that if I have a neighbor that's pissed off at me for whatever reason, he can turn around and have an ex parte, or I don't know what the heck you call it, but turn around and say, hey, listen, this person, uh, they're a little crazy. I don't think they should own a gun. And that person has no idea that a red flag law is going to be initiated against them. And the next thing you know, there is a warrant to have those guns removed from their person without the person even knowing why. Uh, what happens to, you know, our, our justice system? What happens to our Constitution? Where we have the right to face our accuser. We have the right to a uh, speedy trial. Oh, yeah, that's right, January 6th, speedy trial right there. That's real speedy trial. But you still have them langing behind bars from January 6th incident. They're going to try to do anything and everything to silence us. And uh, see, this thing about having somebody review your mental status is one of the reasons why a lot of veterans will not go to the VA when they really need the help, you know, because of mental issues and, and um, you know, PTSD and stuff, because they're afraid they're going to be labeled a certain way and their their rights to bear arms taken, you know, taken away, stripped away. So this thing does have consequences for those that's not even involved in this tragedy. Yeah. So it, it, it's, it's going to backfire and boomerang on them. But... Uh... We do have other other states looking to help preserve the Second Amendment rights because this came out just a couple of days ago uh, in full mag news, and uh, Vermont has restricted the use of suppressors suppressors uh, for several years to ranges, and things were set to change as soon as hunters and outdoorsmen will be able to utilize this. So, new legislation in Vermont will allow. I repeat, will allow the use of suppressors for hunting. Uh, previously, the attachments were only used for sport and target shooting on ranges. But now Senate Bill 281 was passed along, after a long and arduous journey through local government. The final state Senate vote ended 89-49 in favor of passing the legislation. It will head to Governor Phil Scott's desk to be signed. And he has already signaled that he will sign the bill. So let's hope he doesn't renege on that now with what happened in Texas. Yeah. That's that's the other thing to be afraid of. So. I'm gonna tell you this. Um what's the midterms were like next week. <laughs> I cannot wait to, to spank these guys' butts on the other side of the aisle. And at least we have like some some way that we can stop some of this madness, you know, in Congress by regaining the House and maybe re, reclaiming the Senate. We can block a lot of things. Well, let's hope so. We will be, we'll be talking about election integrity and stuff with Hans von Spakovsky uh, for sure. Uh, matter of fact, here in South Carolina, we did pass recent legislation, and I do believe Governor McMaster signed it last week. Um, for election integrity. They've tightened up a lot of the loopholes. Uh, and one of the things they're doing also is every year the election commission must compare the voter rolls against current 
DMV record. person no longer is a resident within the state. Well, they have to uh, surrender their, their driver's license or when they move to a new state, apply for a new one. Therefore, the state of South Carolina is notified that this person no longer resides and they now have a driver's license say, in Wisconsin or wherever. So they can be pulled off the voters list. But the voters list also has to be purged of, you know, uh, people that passed away. So not only people that moved away, but people who had passed away. So they're going to clean up the voter rolls, which is a very good thing. Uh, at one point, uh, an individual could harvest up to eight ballots at one time. Well, now they've tightened that also on the requirements of ballot harvesting, now down to only five requiring uh, uh, confirming signatures, two con- signatures to confirm, um, must have a a valid government-issued ID. So they're doing a lot to try to make sure that there is no hanky-panky. There were some instances, but nothing so far that uh, would ring a lot of bells and whistles like what we saw going on in Georgia or anywhere else. You know, a few minor things. Also, they're mandating that every polling precinct does a random audit of at least 10% of their voting locations. Every single precinct does an audit. And not a full-blown audit, but a sampling to make sure that if there is a potential for a problem or something like that, it's taken care of. The other thing is that we did was we made sure none of the voting machines had online access, period. It had no Wi-Fi. Nothing must be in the machine to enable it to send or receive any sort of a computer signal. So it cannot be Mm -hmm. uh, tampered with from an outside uh, individual. Yeah. So these are things that can be done state by state to improve our voting. But they don't want to do that because then the Democrats might not be able to steal the next election. And, oh, yeah, Yeah, I'm banned. You you have to wonder what are they planning? Because they know we are putting into place certain, you know, mechanisms to prevent them from cheating. But I know they're working overtime to try to get around these things. And, they're, you know, they are very, they are very creative. I'm just hoping we have some people in our think tank that, you know, can use their imagination to, to see, you know, pretty much what these guys may attempt to do and, and, and prepare for it. Well, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. But uh, there's so much more that is also going on in the news. And as a matter of fact, I didn't even turn the TV on today. <laughs> I was doing all my notes last minute. But so when we have a guest that doesn't show up, it kind of like throws me off for a little bit. Uh, yeah. Andy Berger, she is a great guest. I, I, we've had her on several times before. And her story is you know, harrowing, how, how this woman managed to survive and despite all of that, thrive uh, to the point where she started a uh, little organization to help uh, people that are caught in uh, human trafficking. She has this thing, it was named after her, uh, uh, I forget who she named it after, but it's called Beulah's Place, a 501c3 nonprofit mm-hmm. serving at-risk homeless teens in danger of abuse, trafficking, or other criminally predatory activities. And she runs it with her husband, Ed. 
and they've successfully rescued hundreds of teens. Can you imagine that? So instead of wallowing in her own little self-made pool of misery, she said, no, let's turn this into something good. Since she already walked the walk and talked the talk, you know, put what she knows into action and then help these kids turn their lives around. That's anyway, it's a huge difference to what we see happening in our school systems, in our entertainment industry. The stuff that is going on right now, any parent today must be absolutely horrified and afraid of what could potentially happen to their child the moment they're out of sight. Not just the school shooting down in Texas, but the grooming and the training of young, innocent toddlers perfectly normal to have the sexual deviation thrust upon you at such an early age when you barely even know what it means to be a boy or a girl, much less, you know, whether or not you want to play baseball or play dolls with your friends. You know, this is a time where children should be nurtured, not groomed, to be sexual toys. And that's what they're doing. I mean, well, not only that, they churning out little Marxists and socialists. Kind of remind me of the Hitler youth, you know, back in the the days before World War II. You know, mm-hmm. he he knew if he would get to the young people and indoctrinate them, he can have his third, fourth, fifth, and sixth rank. You know, not just the third rank. So, you know, I think the um, those on the left read the playbook from the Germans and the Soviets. Get the youth, and you got the future. You know, she has on her website, you know, some very interesting facts and things. And one of the things she says, she writes is, human trafficking is a federal crime. Every day, an average of five children die from child abuse in the United States. We're more worried about monkeypox than the human trafficking of our children. Uh She had been on Breitbart, and she stated, Disney is supposed to protect the innocence of children. It's supposed to create content that helps children to grow into healthy, stable, confident adults. Well, over the last year, Disney did a 180. Disney has declared war on America's America's children with a stated crusade meant to sexualize innocent children with gay porn, and transsexual propaganda. Disney is now looking, is now looking violate. To, I guess she meant looking to violate the innocence of children, and twist normal, healthy kids into the kind of confused, sexualized, and damaged neurotics child rapists prey on. And she follows mm-hmm. up with, um, when we allow our children to be sold to be used as a commodity, to be violated, persecuted, neglected, discarded, and preyed upon by criminal influences, we deteriorate as a civilized community. There's nothing civilized about using the weak, the innocent, the vulnerable for selfish gain. Andy Berger. That's true. Voices Against Trafficking. And I do wish that she was able to come on on the show. Well, I'm getting ready to see if our next guest is ready to, to 
to join us, well, so I'm going to take a second to... Um, uh, well, he's not until 2.30, so we've got another half hour to kill. 2.30? Let me check. Yeah, 2.30. Yeah, yeah you're right there. Right. Yep. So we had Andy for an hour. Wow. Yeah, and that's unfortunate because I texted her agent and said, you know, we have until 2.30 if she can still you know, call in. But I don't know what happened, so I'll, I'll find out from Jackie later. Anyway... Um, how many out there listening have State Farm insurance? Do you have State Farm, Curtis? No. <laughs> good. I don't have. I don't have the. Because they're I've not heard a some good things neighbor. <laughs> they're they're not a good neighbor. I this was in the Epic Times, and it was dated May twenty third this year by Bill uh, Penn. Um, auto and home insurance giant State Farm, now catch this, encouraged hundreds of employees to donate books promoting transgenderism to young children to their local schools and libraries, according to an Mm. email leaked by a whistleblower. And Bill goes on further to write, the email obtained by nonprofit organization Consumers Research states that the company partnered with transgender youth advocacy group, the Gender Cool Project, in a campaign to, quote, help diversify classroom, community center, and library bookshelves, unquote, with a collection of books centered on the, quote, national conversation about being transgender, inclusive, and non-binary. The project's goal is to increase representation of the LGBTQ plus books, and support our communities in having challenging, important, and empowering conversations with children age five and above. Jose Soto, a corporate responsibility analyst for State Farm in Florida, wrote in an Mm -hmm. email dated January 18th. Of the three books, the Gender Cool Project sought to promote is a kid's book about being transgender, which encourages readers as young as five to shake off whatever confusion, skepticism, concern, or biases you may have about transgender kids. The book suggests that a child's feeling that he or she is of a different gender should be validated rather than challenged, arguing that feelings sometimes, quote, work more like our intuition or insight, unquote, that, quote, allows us to understand something without having to think about it, unquote. One day I look up boy who feels like girl and found stories of people who were just like me, the book reads. That's the first time I heard the word transgender. I realized I wasn't alone. The feeling I had been a girl finally made sense. In the mail, Soto asked for six State Farm insurance agents in Florida to volunteer to participate in the program by receiving these books in March, then donating them to their community by the end of April. Key to the success of this program, the email read, nationwide, approximately 550 State Farm agents and employees will have the opportunity to donate this three-book bundle to their local teacher, community center, or library of their choice. Along with donating the books, we would encourage the agent 
to highlight our commitment to diversity on their social media pages. It added, this is a fantastic way to give back and an easy project that will help support the LBGTQ plus community and make the world around us better. In a statement to the Washington Examiner, which first reported the matter, State Farm defended the voluntary program, saying that it is strictly voluntary for now. We embrace diversity and inclusion because it's the right thing to do. We work with a variety of organizations and causes that express their own unique views and support civil and open dialogue on challenging topics, the company said. The Gender Cool Project describes itself as a youth-led movement bringing positive change to the world. The organization's website highlights a group of young transgender or gender nonconforming champions who are helping replace misinformed opinions with positive experiences meeting transgender and non-binary youth who are thriving. Gender Cool lists a number of high-profile companies other than State Farm as its partners and supporters, including Adobe, Dell, Oracle, Intel, HP, Bayer, Nike, Bank of America, Capital One, Indeed, and NBC Universal. The group says it engages with partners in six powerful ways, such as speaking events, mentorship programs, DEI slash HR consulting, whatever that is. Oh, oh a, a diversity, equity, and whatever else, and human resources. Advising for parents of transgender children. What sick mind thought this up? I mean, what kid? I want to I know, when do they find time to learn reading, writing, and arithmetic? Mm. When do they learn the basics of our history, our founding documents? Yeah, I even learn, in history. When do they learn social interaction as in sharing toys or learning how to have a conversation with someone without being revolving around them? When do you teach them it's okay to be a kid? So what if you're a girl who likes to play baseball? That doesn't mean you're a boy. It means you like to play baseball. So what if you're a boy who likes to dress dolls? G.I. Joe is a doll. Come on. It doesn't mean you're a girl. And sooner or later, by the time they hit the age of 18, they have then decided, well, you know, I'm okay. I'm okay with the way I was born. This is what God made me, and this is who I am. Or if you're one of the less than 1% of 1% who actually does have true gender dysphoria, you'll figure that out too. But let kids be kids. Don't groom them sexually. At the age of five, what the heck do they know about body parts? Uh-uh. They just know, you know, a boy's a little bit different than the girls. But as they grow older, they'll learn what the difference is, when the time is right and when the parents choose them to learn that. Not a school, not Disney, not any of these gender diversity or equity, what do you want to call it, diversities, uh, equity or inclusion BS things. 
Not someone else telling my kid or your kid or any other person's kid. Where do you, where do you get the right to usurp the parent or the guardian? Where do you get that right? You're not the one that's putting the food on the table, clothing on their back, a roof over their head. You're not the one that birthed them and brought them into the world. They're not your property. So keep your hands well, off the kids. They have made themselves self-appointed, you know, um, surrogate parents. You know, it's their appointed duty to um, make sure your child <laughs> is going in the right direction in life without your input. And that's oh. what's going on, been going on, and why some of these kids are committing suicide. Yeah. And it's a ever travesty. Since, ever since they started the indoctrination of the kids, um, there has been an increase of uh, child suicides. And when you have a child as young as five or six years old committing suicide, something's wrong, hon. Something is definitely wrong here. I mean, what did, was that child put through that their life was made so impossible? Here, this, the world could lay at this child's feet. The world is wide open. They should be there in awe and wonder and learning. But no, instead, they're being pressured by these outside groups to conform to something that probably deep inside them they know is not right. And a lot of them over time end up realizing what's going to happen to this whole generation of kids coming up that have lived through this gender fluidity. And suddenly after they've had all the surgeries and the body has now been mutilated and they come to the realization when they are an adult that it's wrong, that whatever they put themselves through was wrong, that they should have just you know, been left alone. Boy, boy, girl, girl. And if you are one of the few that end up having true gender diversity, that there's places out there to help you, not to groom you. But what happens to this whole generation that's going to come up and all of a sudden be so unhappy because they have been so badly mutilated and so far led astray? Because it's happening now. Well, they're going to be confused, unstable, and want to go out and shoot up people. You know, we had Walter Hyatt on here at one time, and he talked about the sex change regret because he lived eight years as a woman. He went through the surgeries and everything. Now, here was a married man with kids, and he went through the change. And after eight years, after, you know, suffering through the drug addiction and all the other stuff that he went through, he found that if he transitioned back, it was actually healthier, and happier. Most of these people that do trans, trans, whatever uh, you want to call it, they're finding that a lot of them have been put through some sort of an abuse, whether it's mental or sexual. And the abuse and forcing someone to believe, when you have a guidance counselor or a teacher that grooms that child and keeps telling them day in and day out, don't tell your parents because they're not going to understand. They're the bad guys. But you really are not a girl. You really are a boy. So we're going to change your pronouns, and we're going to address you differently. But when you go home, you don't let your parents know. That, that's sick. And I, 
when you take someone's child and you just distort them and torture them in such a it's mental torture. And when you give them the hormones when they're not even going through puberty yet, what damage are you doing to their little bodies? Bigfoot, you do remember the uh, the story correctly. He was forced by his grandmother to wear a dress, and then he was also then abused by one of his cousins as he when it was a young boy. So he got it from both sides. And as yeah, you are, he is correct. I was going to mention something about that because it's really strange that back in the 17 and 1800s, women would dress their little boys, toddlers, as girls, put them in a dress. And I've never fully understood why they would do that. Ernest Hemingway, he was the same way. And I think that's one of the reasons why he became such a um, a guy who wanted to, to have a lot of machismo, to be macho, because of the fact that um, he was trying to compensate for his embarrassment of um, being dressed up like a girl when he was a little boy. You know, these things do have um, consequences over time with certain people. I guess some guys wouldn't bother them, but others, you know, they might have been teased or something. You know, there's, there's a whole other area in which we can uh, hit with this one, but I'm sorry that uh, Andy did not join us. You know, um, on, on a little bit of a I'm trying to see what, what I want to go into next. But there was a really interesting article on ammo.com. Uh, yes, I do get gun magazines. <laughs> my, my, my concealed uh, carry uh, came in, uh, magazine came in today. Can't wait to thumb through that. Anyway. Well, um, going to get a visit by the FBI. <laughs> hey, I'm officially banned on YouTube. I, I told I've had too many strikes against me right now. So I, I am not allowed to post anything. I believe they said until August 19th. Oh, I'm hurt. <laughs> I am so hurt. You have to, tears you, coming you have down to perform face. in this society now. It's all about performing. Oh, man. Look at the tears just rolling down my face. <laughs> hey, idiots, it's tears of laughter. I made the grade. I made the grade. I got banned. Got banned on YouTube. It's a matter of time before Facebook <laughs> decides to slap me down, too. Oh, well, I'm so hurt. <laughs> anyway, this was an excellent article, and I started reading it before the show, and I haven't been able to finish all, all of it through. Pointed out in the article how politicians over the years have distorted our language to the point where we no longer understand the true meaning of certain words such as liberty and freedom. They roll them all together so you think they're synonymous. They're not. They're not. And when I hear a politician saying, well, you know, uh, you're not losing your freedom or whatever. They throw the things around there talking about your liberties and when they're actually talking about your freedom. And so people who don't really truly understand the difference between liberty, which is an outer construct, and freedom, which is an inner construct. Freedom means that no one can make you think. Only you can do that. You have the freedom to think freely, to think whatever it is you want. And no one can really take that away from you unless they use 
an outside construct, like you read in the book 1984, where suddenly two and two equals five, and you actually no longer have the freedom to think whatever it is, because they've, they've taken that away from you. They forced you to think the way they did. That's the true loss of freedom. Um, there was a quote they used, and I think it really explains it best. Let me just flip to that page. Uh, Victor Frankl, he was a legendary Holocaust survivor who wrote Man's Search for Meaning, and he said it very, very well. And he had said, Everything can be taken from a man, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way in how he approaches his circumstances. Now, you can choose to submit and lose that freedom, or you can choose to fight and keep who you are intact. And this is the problem that we have in today's society, Curtis. They want to take away that freedom. They want to force us to think the way they do. And we can't give that up. We cannot give that up. We have to stand firm. Can we understand people? Yeah. But it doesn't mean that I have to accept that lifestyle. Don't force it on me. Don't force me to think something different than I know what is right in my heart. That's a freedom. Yeah, I think um, I think those on the left love to subjugate others so they can feel even better about themselves and their superiority in their minds, that is. And I will not submit. Well, see, the freedom is an internal construct where liberty is, as I said, external. It's a state of being free within society from oppressive, oppressive restrictions imposed by other authority on one's way of life, such as behavior or political views. If they impose those restrictions and prevent us from exercising our freedom of speech, freedom to worship, freedom to protest, freedom to think without them telling us how to think, that's one thing. But the liberty that would prohibit you from openly doing that. That's the external construct. And so we're actually fighting a two-pronged fight, one for our freedoms and one to preserve our liberties, our ability in the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, of speech, of self-defense. Those are liberties. The others are speech. It's a freedom. And liberty helps preserve that or restricts that. And uh, this article is really very excellent. And it breaks it down to the construct of the words, where they came from, and various uh, segments from essays to uh, explain the difference between positive and negative rights. And uh, I, I think we're going to have to have, see if I can get... Uh, this guy, Brian Miller from ammo.com to uh, come on the show come and talk show. more about this. Yeah. Yeah. It is a really good article. So go over to ammo.com under the articles, and it's titled Freedom Versus Liberty, How Subtle Differences Between These Two Big Ideas Changed Our World. 
See, our society is so unique. We built it in preserving the freedoms by creating the liberties that allowed us to fully express and enjoy those freedoms. And that's the difference between our nation and any other nation in the world. And uh, they're trying to take that away from us, and we can't. We can't let that happen. So I'm putting this aside to see if I can get a hold of him and have him come on and talk more extensively so you know, people can understand what it is we're fighting for, just exactly what it is that we are fighting for and what are we facing and how better to mentally arm ourselves, verbally arm ourselves to challenge those who want to take away our liberties and therefore restrict our freedoms. That's a lot at stake, Curtis, is it not? It is. And in my estimate, things are only going to get worse before they get better, as the saying goes, because what is this, uh, 22, we still got two more years of pain but hope, hopefully, like I said earlier, we can reclaim the House and the Senate and slow some of this this, this stuff down, you know, yeah. and get back to some some kind of uh, um, civility. Because I'm telling you, I feel like I live in a twilight zone. I mean, I just went to the store before the show, and there was a sign um, at the checkout counter saying, only four um, bottles of formula per customer. I felt like I was living in Argentina or something, or Soviet Union. This was used to be the, the land of, of plenty, and now we've been reduced to, you know, <laughs> you can only get four, you know, bottles of um, form, baby formula. Okay, so what do you do after that? You know, this this is what really gets me because the media really isn't talking too much about that because children are getting sick and children have died because of this. And they knew, the FDA knew back in September that there was a problem with that plant. And they they knew that the bacteria infection that was in the formula was causing children to be sick and children had died because of the contaminated formula. They knew that back in September, and they didn't send out anyone to start to inspect the plant until I think it was like December, January. I mean, how long does it take you to respond when there's illness and death being caused by a a, a baby formula? When you know you traced it down there back in September, and then when they knew that the plant had to be shut down, they waited until February. And then knowing that there's full well, there's going to be a baby food shortage, and they finally admit to the public, what, last month? Come on. And now all this baby formula that went overseas, that we sent over, we have to now buy back. And we have to ship it back. Why did we allow it to go overseas? Why did not we take care of our own children here first? If you know it was safe formula. You say, wait a minute, we're going to have a shortage. We see this in September. Let's do this right now. Let's prohibit how much exports can go out until we get this plant back up and running or we get another plant running. They sat on their thumbs. September, October, November, December, January, February, 
March, April. And how many children are now sick and how many of them are, will never fully develop because they're, they're being malnourished. Physically and mentally are being malnourished and will never fully develop to what their potential would have been had our government not screwed up so badly. Now, Mondas, Mondas standing is that our neighbors to the north will be sending us a lot of baby formula from up in Canada. How soon they could get it down here, I don't know. But um, this is something, like you said, could have been acted on much earlier, much earlier, you know. Say, look, Canada, we're going to have a shortage here in about two or three months, you know. Let's work out something where we can, um, you know, get your product down to the states. They didn't do any of this. It's like they're just doing things by happenstance. In other words, you know, whatever comes up, we'll deal with it then. They're not. They're not looking. They don't. They don't have a forward-looking um, mindset. So these you know, things just seem to sneak up on them. This this administration is is. They they want crisis after crisis to happen. They want to be able to control us because every single time there's a crisis, they find another way to implement some sort of a federal program and say, well, y'all too stupid to let the capital the capitalistic market work. Um, you can't be trusted. Government has to do everything for you. So now you will become a slave, a serf of the government which is basically what they're doing to us. The latest yeah, thing is led, now this monkeypox virus. Who led them down this path? Obama. Crisis after crisis after crisis. And Rahm Emanuel. Let's never let a crisis go to waste. Now, and then, of course, you know, the uh, spider is sitting in the middle of his web, George Soros. You know, you've got Zuckerberg, you've got Soros, you've got the billionaires. They don't care what happens to the average guy. They just want to keep everyone down. They want the pot for themselves. And how else to control the pot? You control the population. How do you control the population? You control the strings to government. And they're pulling it. They're pulling those strings. And uh, yeah, well, you, you control their pocketbook or purse, whatever you want to call it. And you keep them in a state of fear, like during COVID. And that's how you get them to respond the way you want them to respond, except for those critical thinkers who think for themselves. Mm-hmm. Well, why don't you see if you can start calling into our next guest, and we will take a little short break. Um, so Annie has to, that's what I'm looking for. And we will be back in just a few months. Friends, the world is in serious danger now. Oh, believe me. Inflation is causing food prices to skyrocket. Not to talk about the gas lines being closed down by this administration. The global supply chain continues to collapse. And with the coming food shortages, it will be worse than anything we've lived through. In times like these, what should you do? Well, go to my website, Southern Sense, put a dash in it, southern-sense.com, and click on the upper left-hand corner where it says My Patriot Foods. 
and invest in long-term emergency food shortages from My Patriot Supply while you still can. My Patriot Supply is the largest preparedness company in America with millions of satisfied customers, and I'm one of them. Their food lasts up to 25 years in storage. When you need it, you will have it and avoid government food lines quickly and save $150 on a vital three-month emergency food kit. This kit provides a variety of delicious foods, totaling over 2,000 calories a day. You won't go hungry when you have this emergency food, period. So go to my website, Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, and save $150 on every three-month food kit. That is, go to my website, Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Protect your family and secure this emergency food supply today. Also, you can get other supply things there, which I bought is the water purifying system. So check it out. Go to my website, Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Click on the display in the upper left-hand corner for My Patriot Foods. Be prepared. Do it today. All right, and we are back. We have our guest in on the line, and it actually worked, Curtis. I was so skeptical. Oh, yeah. I mean, I couldn't even call into my own show today. <laughs> so I am so <laughs> glad that Derek Bullen has been able to join us today. Good afternoon, Derek. We have been having uh, the, the show from hell today. Anything that technically well, can go yeah. wrong has gone wrong. <laughs> And well, I'm I glad all... I made it in. I must have made it in on the wire. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, 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 it started off with I went to post something up uh, onto YouTube, and I, as soon as I opened up the YouTube account, I get this thing is, you've got a strike against you. And then I start looking. My last three shows, they have put a strike against me. And so I can't post on YouTube until August 19th at this point. Oh, and heaven forbid. Why? Heaven forbid. Uh, Why did of, they? Was that just an arbitrary determination by somebody at YouTube? Yeah, I guess so because they said I was expressing misinformation. <laughs> oh my God! You were probably expressing information. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! I, just just waiting to see what they're going to do to my show later on because we're going to end up the sh- the show with one of my favorite guests, Hans von Spakowski, who also had something. Mm. He could, went up on YouTube kit band <laughs> suddenly. Well, you know, for for this reason, I truly hope that Elon Musk buys Twitter because this arbitrary censorship of views that are unwanted or unliked just has to stop. And I find that when people on the far left make an argument, it tends to be an emotional argument. When people on the right make an argument, it tends to be fact-based. And then all of a sudden the facts are decried as misinformation or racist or some other emotional statements put on them when really they're just facts. And it's just the way it is. It just doesn't tie to the emotional narrative of the left. And there's been so much censorship. I mean, Twitter's full of censorship. Uh, YouTube's full of censorship. And uh, it's not censorship for the general population. Like, like how many people are on the, the right? I think in the United States, there's more people on the right than on the left by a small amount, and the rest are moderates. But this censorship seems to be predominantly biased towards the left. 
Yeah, yeah, it is. And, you know, it's okay for them to say whatever it is. But if I were to question, um, did the virus accidentally or deliberately leak from the Wuhan lab in China? Uh-oh. Uh-oh, you're banned. That's misinformation. Right? It's just simply questioning whether or not. And, and, you know, and you have the right to question, like especially with all the fear porn that came out during COVID. And what I didn't get is how come COVID is super fearful and uh, terrible in New York and super accepted and benevolent in Texas. It's the same virus. How can it be? How does it know when it's in New York and when it's in Texas or when it goes between Florida and California? Like the, the media representation, I think, to sell papers and to get eyeballs onto their online media was uh, terrible. And I think it's going to scar a generation, the fear that was generated by mainstream media. Well, it, it's, it's not only just the fear, but the, the, the kids that had to wear these masks and are now being mm-hmm. shown, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, the um, intellectual, uh, I'm just having a brain fart here, IQ level. Hmm. is dropping in these young kids. They're no longer able to socially interact because they don't understand facial expressions. You know, some right. of these kids have, have not seen their parent's face without a mask on. I mean, how do you recognize your parent and bond with that parent if they're always I know, the Annie. I know. And, you know, for some cohorts and, and for some of the uh, most disadvantaged, you know, among in society, when all of a sudden schools said, okay, that's it, you're going home and we're going to do it online, they made the assumption that everybody has a personal computer at home that can be accessed. And if you've got, you know, three siblings at home and you are just working to maintain a living, what do you all of a sudden do when you've got three siblings, no computers, and uh, they all want to go to school? I think there's going to be a lost generation from that effect, too. Yeah. And what does that do to our nation's productivity? What did it do to our mm. economic level when you have a whole entire generation that had not functioned socially and they don't know how to yeah. go out and get a job? You know, what so much of it that? was bad policy. So much. And the handouts, the handouts went for too long and they were bad policy, too. I mean, there's a red hot job market right now because many people don't want to work. They've been disincentivized to work. Some people think just staying at home, eating Doritos on your couch is uh, a great is good enough and just as long as the checks keep rolling in every month it'll be great and uh, we just need people to work the best sign I saw Annie was uh, a sign saying uh, please uh, please be kind to those of us who have decided to come in to work today (laughs) (laughs) which I thought was great (laughs) well I want to introduce you to our audience Uh, Derek Boland you have a um, book that just came out and unfortunately your agent booked me booked you with me really late so i haven't had a chance to read it so i i'm going just by the title and i'm winging this in defense of wealth a modest rebuttal to the charge that the rich are bad for society oh my goodness correct how dare you pull yourself up from pure poverty and build yourself an empire or wealth or just be affluent enough to be comfortable, you are, you're really bad because I'm now depriving you of that housing or whatever it is that I have that you don't have. 
Wow. Exactly. And, you know, I, I wrote that book for exactly that. You know, Elon Musk uh, <clears throat> tweeted, it was either today or yesterday, that uh, taking the term billionaire as pejorative is not only morally wrong, uh, but, but it's wrong in all regards. And I wrote this book about that because when politicians stump and say, pay your fair share, they gloss over the fact that in the United States, the top 1% pay 40% of the federal taxes and uh, to some extent give everybody else a free ride. In fact, the first 57% of workers in 2021 will, will pay zero federal income taxes. They will get a complete uh, free ride, you know, courtesy of the, the top 1%. So this pay your fair share, they do. I think Elon Musk paid almost $12 billion in, in uh, federal taxes uh, last year. And then the other thing that the rich are, are the, the income, the inequality gap is causing more people to become poor. Also, also not true is the rich become richer, the pie becomes bigger, and there's less and less people in poverty. You know, Annie, the world had about 13 billionaires in 1980. Today, the world has uh, almost 3,000 billionaires. In the same time, globally, People living below the poverty line has declined from 45% to 22%, and the trend continues to go downward. And not only is, is poverty decreasing, but as the rich get richer and there's more prosperity for everyone, lifespan is increasing. In 1980, you the average person lived for 64 years globally, and today it's 73 years. So, you know, there, there, there's a decrease in poverty. And the poor will always be among us. There's people who can't work, and then there's also people who don't want to work. So they'll always be there. But as you have more rich people in your nation, in your community, um, you have more services for the poor and more opportunity for the poor to get a job and take themselves out of poverty. So that was another myth. So the rich are paying their fair share, the rich are uh, bringing people out of poverty. And then there was this misconception that wealth is just continuously inherited and that's not true either 70% of the billionaires today 70% of the people in the Forbes 400 list for the United States and 88% of the millionaires living in America made their fortune in their own lifetime from scratch nobody nobody knows that and and an inheritance is tough it's very very difficult to make money it's a lot it's an insane amount of hours it's risk it doesn't always it rarely works out and uh, and when it does it's wonderful but it's it's even harder to keep it the majority of people that have money today uh, significant money 70% of them their families will no longer have that money by the time their grandchildren are adults that's just the stats. So this thing that it's inherited and nobody deserves it, it's wrong. It's done, you know, through hard work. And then there were just so many other ones. And then people were saying CEOs are way overpaid. Well, CEOs are paid less than, than a, a top athlete, about a tenth the mm-hmm. amount of a, of a top athlete. And they create trillions in prosperity like um, Amazon. Amazon went up. The stock of Amazon went up significantly in 2021. So uh, Bezos owns 10% of the company. He only owns 10% of the company because he started the company. It didn't exist before he had an idea, you know, and uh, brought it to life. And so his 10% went up 57 billion, and everybody was focused on that. What they weren't focused on is 
well, there's 90% of Amazon that's owned by some by individuals, but most by banks, governments, insurance companies, institutions, unions, pension funds, and that 90%, courtesy of Jeff Bezos, they made their their net worth of their investment went up by over half a trillion, 513 billion, and so if there's um, you know a teacher in California on a, a pension, if someone gets an insurance claim on their house, if someone's getting strike pay from their union, there's some Amazon wealth creation in all of that, and uh, you know so the majority is being made for everyone else, and also. You know, the people aren't working for free in Amazon. You know, Amazon paid out $46 billion in salaries to 1.6 million employees in 2021 too. And they've got a job for everyone. Whether you never went to high school, whether you've got a master's degree from someplace, they, they, they've got a job for you. And so the majority of money that Bezos is creating, he's creating for and on behalf of everyone else and, and that's it's those type of actions that make you know the United States still the you know the the greatest country on the planet certainly the most economically um, important it's still a third of the world's GDP and it's being done by by wealth creators yet they're they're demonized uh, by um, politicians who are you know running for election well they, it makes a good soundbite it makes a good sound bite, and yeah. then you get that uninformed voter that says, "Hey, uh, well, I'm poor, and you know they got all this stuff, so maybe that politician's going to give me a piece of the pie." Well, you're not going to get a piece yeah. of the pie unless you earn it and deserve it. You have the right to pursue right. happiness, but you are not given the guarantee of happiness. Yes. And one of the best things we have about this nation is that you can try and try and keep on falling down, but you always are given that opportunity to try again or try something different until you find yes. what is right for you. You know, um, I, I can tackle what you've said in so many different, different areas, but going back to those that start, you know, uh, creating their own wealth from scratch. As they grow and they expand, as you say, they spread pieces of that pie out. So suddenly now, mm -hmm. that farmer who didn't have uh, a, a way to get rid of all of his excess uh, inventory, uh, whether it's in pigs or eggs or whatever, suddenly as that wealth grows, there is going to be an increased demand for what that farmer can supply. And then there's, mm -hmm. there's the entrepreneur who sees that as this wealth is being spread, a new need is growing, and they find carve out their own niche to provide a service or product that fits that growing uh, wealth circle. It's a huge, mm -hmm. massive circle. So it, it's you spread the wealth when you create wealth. You do not spread the wealth when you steal wealth. You don't. And if you look at, um, you know, and that's the promise of uh, socialism is that we'll we'll just distribute the wealth. And uh, what we don't get taught about socialism and, and our educational institutions in America are 60% biased to the left, even though the general representation of the population is much closer to 20%. So almost like three times the representation of left in the uh, educational institutions. What they don't say is that along with the redistribution of wealth, um, tens of millions of people will die. Most people will live below the poverty line and there'll be tremendous starvation. If you look even in like so 
That happened in Russia, that happened in China, and, in, and if you look at Venezuela, which has one of the largest oil deposits, was a very wealthy nation in South America, and Hugo Chavez gets, gets elected and says, I will redistribute the wealth, we'll take care of everybody, nationalizes everything, and today, it hasn't been a long time since they've been socialist, today 90% of Venezuelans live below the poverty line, and the average Venezuelan has lost 24 pounds due to malnutrition. And nobody tells you that when they teach you about socialism in school. They just they just appeal to your empathy and say it's great and everybody gives in. But, you know, it just doesn't work. Like if you, if you want to do a thought experience to say, well, why does socialism fail? I mean, think about if people did that with sports. You know, you, you get these great athletes like uh, Peyton Manning in the NFL, you know. And why they're so good is because there's a score. And at the end of every game, some team wins and some team loses. Well, what would happen if we socialized football and we just said, you know, we're, you guys all play hard, but that at the end of the game, we're going to look at it. And one team got 24 points and the other team got 10 points. So what we're going to do is we're going to take some of those 24 points from this one team and we're going to give it to the other team. And so nobody wins. It's a tie. And you, yeah, you guys worked hard. We're a better team, but we're going to give some of your points to the next team. Well, how many people do you think would try out for an NFL pro career and how long do you think the sport would last? Like not long at all. Well, it's the same thing too. If you take people who work hard, like when you socialize something and you're a farmer, if you, if you grow a lot of crops or very little crops, you're still going to get paid the same. And what you're going to get paid is just enough to get by. So all of a sudden it's like, well, I don't need to do all the work to grow a lot. I'll just grow a little. And then if you're a trucker who gets paid for driving things across the country to where they're needed, you know, food, goods, medicine, stuff like that, and you're just getting paid a small amount, just enough to get by, whether you drive across the country or just drive around your city or whether you just don't even go into work at all, pretty soon stuff stops. And, you know, and, and that's where this massive starvation happens when, um, you know, when these systems run. And the opposite can happen too. So when Nixon opened up the doors with uh, China back in the 1970s, uh, it was Deng Xiaoping who then came back to the United States and could not believe the prosperity in the United States because that's not what they were brought up to believe in Mao's communist China. And when he was here... 88% of the Chinese population was living below the poverty line. He saw the, mm -hmm. the, the wealth and prosperity in the United States. So he, said, he went back and said, we're going to make special economic zones and allow people to work hard and make money. And China today has 673 billionaires. They have 20 special economic zones where you can work hard, make money, keep your money. They, they've got 20 little micro copies of the United States. Well, they're not that micro because there's a lot of uh, Chinese inside the nation. They've got 20 special economic zones which emulate capitalism in the United States. And today, less than 2% of the Chinese population live below the poverty line. So, you know, this whole thing of um, millennials and Gen X as seeing capitalism and socialism as equally viable systems is such a straw man. Uh, socialism leads to uh, famine and starvation, and capitalism leads to wealth, prosperity, longer lifelines, greater services, and greater innovation. You know, for the world. Like uh, I, I've got a, I've got a smartphone. I'm sure you do. 
very hard to, to think about um, the, the smartphones, uh, electric cars, or other innovations that came out of Cuba, <laughs> you know, or <laughs> other socialist states in our lifetime. Very easy to see how many came out of uh, free capitalist democracies. Derek. Go ahead. This is my co-host, Curtis. Hi, Michael. Yeah. I um, often, when I I talk to um, relatives and friends that are on the other side of the aisle, and they talk about how how good the government has been to such communities and and the, the poor and disenfranchised, I tell them, you know, all that's well and good, but who would want to spend the rest of their life dependent on government? Why not come over to this side of the aisle where we believe in prosperity and less government regulation and, you know, lifting yourself up by the bootstraps, you know? And that's how mm-hmm. I, you know, get through to a lot of them, you know? Because like you said, they 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 have been taught to um, demonize um, the right and and our free market system, you know, the the free market system is, is a bad word here, capitalism. And it's these professors and things that have made it, you know, a bad word. So we mm-hmm. we have to do our best to, to get across to these numb nuts that are being, <laughs> being brainwashed that capitalism is the best thing for the poor, you know. You, you can start out nothing, just, just hey, like Jay-Z and Beyonce and people like that. They And James Brown, even, Michael Jackson, they worked hard. They were poor. Oh, and they, they were. It. Rihanna's a billionaire today. Hard work. Oh, yeah. Hard work and talent. And and you know, Michael, um, seventy percent of the billionaires today. Or yes. Sorry, Curtis. Curtis, seventy percent of the billionaires today made their money in their lifetime, and they all came from very different uh, backgrounds. And you know, when you talk about the people on the other side of the aisle, the left, it's 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 generational too. Like um, there's a saying that if you're not if you're not liberal by the age of 24, you don't have a heart, and then if you're not conservative by the age of 35, you don't have a brain. And, and there was a study, and, and, and then your views of the rich change too, right? So um, socialism is seen as highly viable by young people, but not by older people that have had to work for a living, pay their taxes, you know, and do their fair share, and, and know how, how hard it is to, like, it, it's, it's as hard to budget um, $1,000 as it is to, to budget, you know, a, a million dollars. You have to make priorities and decisions about what you're going to buy. And so there's this um, institute in the States called the Cato Institute, and mm-hmm. they did a survey of uh, Americans' views on the rich in 2019, and it showed that 52% of Americans under the age of 30 believe the rich create wealth by taking advantage of others. Now, 72% of people over 50 believe the rich earn their wealth without exploitation, which is actually the, the uh, exactly what happens. Like if you're, if you're creating wealth as a CEO, it's like putting on a buffet for all of your neighbors in your community. You, you buy the food, you cook the food, you present it, everybody comes and eats. And only if there's something left over that you can create a small plate for yourself, 
do you get to uh, you know celebrate and eat too? And that and that's the life of a of a CEO. But yeah, the older you get, the more you come tend to come to an understanding of that and how money works. And the younger you are, you don't. And I guess it makes sense too, Curtis, because you know if you're a young person and you're living at home, for most young people, their their room board food and and side money comes comes for free and you know when you hear about socialism you're like that sounds like a great system it's similar to what i'm doing except instead of my parents it's the government and uh they're just going to give everybody a living but it, it's also i think soul crushing i think for people who can work they should work because it creates confidence purpose and you get to find out what you've really who you really are through work and i think a lot of joy comes through hard work you know, and I think some of the happiest people I know are people who work hard at something that they love. Well, you know, you you point out one thing it, it, when you said soul crushing, because it's normal for the human spirit to desire something better. It is normal mm-hmm. in our life to desire to obtain something higher, whether it's spiritual or monetary. But we have this need. Not only are we social animals, we need the interaction, but we also need to strive for something. And if we don't, that is when you have the crushed spirit, but that is when you have communism and socialism, because there is no longer anything to strive for. So why should Mm -hmm. you strive? Why should you do an Mm -hmm. extra effort on that job? Why should you stay an extra five minutes? For what? Mm-hmm. For the same exact thing the mm-hmm. person standing next to me for, and they work five minutes less than me. So why would I do it? Where is my mm-hmm. incentive? And that is the difference mm-hmm. between the creation of wealth because you have the incentive to make yourself better, to find a way to do it. And then you turn that on also to those individuals and companies that do make it. They do make it up the, the, the economic ladder. Then they throw in the heritage, the inheritance tax, the inheritance tax. And that always blows <laughs> right. my mind. The majority, vast majority of businesses are small businesses in the United States. And they're family-owned, farm or a small family business. When one individual passes away and the remaining shares of that business go to the other family members or other you know, uh, board members, it, 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 there's nothing to tax because by the time you say, well, the company was worth $5 million, we're going to tax you on the $5 million you just inherited. What are you talking about? That's what we need yeah. to maintain the business. And they end up destroying right. the, the businesses. They end up destroying the farms because they can't afford the taxes. They have no choice but to sell off or to close shop. So when they mm-hmm. attack wealth, they don't understand yeah. the formation of wealth. Right. And, you know, um, in the first couple months here of 2022, um, last year, everybody was all about how much the shares that Elon Musk owned or Jeff Bezos owned went up in value. Now that they've dropped and uh, each of them has dropped and, and lost you know, uh, over 50 billion. There, nobody's writing articles about that. And and nobody writes articles about, you know, as you're saying, the farm or the corner store or even the big company like Blockbuster when they fail and run. And it's somebody's life work that uh, is, you know, gone, you know, in an instance. You know, um, Annie, CEOs of businesses 
And professional athletes, they have, you know, so much in common, like an injury can just take you out of the game. And uh, both uh, categories have to work, you know, so, so hard. And what's interesting, CEOs get paid a lot less than uh, athletes. Like uh, the top 50 athletes last year made an average of $60 million in income each year. All of the CEOs in the S&P 500 on average made $14.7 million. Like, like both great compensations, but it's a little bit better if you're an athlete and a lot of athletes become billionaires like uh, Michael yeah. Jordan, like uh, Vince McMahon. And for both, what people don't realize, it takes an insane amount of time to become that. Like the average CEO is 24 years on the job before they become a CEO. The average yeah. professional athlete has to start at age six. Like, like if you watch that movie about Venus and Serena Williams, they, they are starting in their sport at a young age. And so, you know, when people say, oh, this athlete just popped on the scene at, you know, age 22. No, they didn't. They, they, they started when they were four or five or six. Yeah. And yeah. for both athletes and CEOs, it's not an eight-hour workday. It's a 10-hour workday, and a lot of the work continues on the weekends. Same thing, elite athlete training never stops, elite CEO, work never stops. And this is something else. In the United States, there are 35,900 and some professional athletes, athletes who make a living being an athlete. Also in the United States is 38,700 CEOs of private and public companies, like strikingly similar populations. So, you know, Annie, when you're talking about the hard work, you know, to do it, whether it's a farm, a shop, a business, a big business, yeah, it's insane. And uh, the only thing I can see that, that that is similar to that amount of work, dedication, and time invested is uh, being an elite athlete. You know, it, it's funny because uh, my first business I owned back in 1978. <laughs> I'm dating myself now. <laughs> But this is a true story. Uh, I was in my junior year of, of high school, got called into the guidance counselor's office, and he sits me down, and he goes, this is my advice for you. He goes, take secretarial courses and marry your boss. This is exactly what he told me. Oh, my God. Me. I, two years later, I had a degree in business administration. I was walking into the night courses at that same high school, which my guidance counselor was running. And he goes, Anne Marie, I see you took my advice. And I said, no, Mr. Hotchkiss, I didn't. He goes, you're not going to take a course? And I said, no, Mr. Hotchkiss, I'm teaching your course. That travel agency down the street that you see down there, I've got 13 employees, and I'm here to teach one of your courses. Have a nice day. Beautiful, <laughs> so, Annie. Beautiful. Beautiful. It, 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 and you, you know, have to have the that's courage the experience. to do yeah. Yeah. That's the experience. Like there was nobody cheering you on when you're an entrepreneur, like, like you were in 19, uh, like you are today. And like in 1978, <laughs> there's no group of people supporting you. There's a group of people saying, yeah, pay me. If you hire me, pay me money. If you want to rent my space for your travel agency, great, pay me money. And you're, you're pay, 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 pay. And your, your return comes much later and there's nobody cheering you on it's the same for everybody else too like you know amazon was very uh low profitability low to no profitability for the first 10 years and i think it was in 1999 nobody's cheering on jeff bezos in fact barons 
the, the financial magazine, puts them on the front page with an article called Amazon.bomb, why online sales are silly and will never work. And so people don't understand that too. It, it, people aren't encouraging you to be an entrepreneur. People are discouraging you. And you have to have the willpower to persevere. You just must have it. And if you do, good for you. And good for you, Annie, for, for persevering and going back and teaching that course. Well, you know, I, I've managed several different businesses and everything, and now I do this. This, to me, is like a hobby. Uh, but, you know, I've gotten to that point in my life where I don't have to worry. I, I can afford to have this as a hobby. But that is what wealth can do. It puts you into a position in life where you're comfortable. And if you wanted to continue to strive for something better, go for it. If you want to do something mm-hmm. like I do and get the word out there, spread the message, Spread the conservative message out there. Say, hey, listen, the left is, is why they're on the left, because they're left out. <laughs> we are right. <laughs> but, you know, I love it. It, it, it. The demonization of wealth is one of the things that will cause the failure of these United States, the loss of now generations of our youth through the indoctrination we see in our school districts with the over-sexualization of even five-year-olds at this point uh, to the masking oh of kids, God. to the to the loss of, of, yeah. of IQ, to the loss of social skills. Um, if anything will bring our nation down, it's that, and we've got to find some way to rescue it. Annie, it's um, the same thing that happened 100 years ago with the Spanish flu. And the Spanish flu did kill a lot of people, unlike COVID. COVID mm-hmm. killed people, but so does cancer, so does the flu, you know, so do all of those things. And, and uh, when Texas and Florida just went to give people back their freedoms, they didn't have any higher death rates than uh, states that were still in full lockdown like California and New York. But in the Spanish flu in 1918, there were so many similarities. The stock market soared. Uh, after the uh, during the Spanish flu, shortly after the Spanish flu was abating, the stock market crashed, and there's you know nobody understands that, but the stock market lost a substantial amount of value in 1921, just like the stock market's losing substantial amount of value here, and there was a psychologically scarred uh, generation of Americans, and prohibition didn't come out because of uh, Christian values or conservative values. Prohibition came out because depression was rampant and people were drinking themselves to death, and that was one of the ways the government thought that they could put a, put an end to that, and it's the same thing here. I'm um, in Canada right now. I'm in uh, the province of British Columbia on the Pacific Ocean. The province of British Columbia had a massive increase in drug overdoses due to depression during COVID and had more people die from drug overdose in this province of 4 million people than actually died of COVID. And what we know from the Spanish flu is it was lingering. That psychological scar was lingering. And and I think the kids are going to have a tremendous cycle and and many adults, a tremendous psychological scar from how the the government treated it, and how mainstream media just continued to publish fear porn every day, and uh, you know this will kill you. And, and uh, when 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 it stopped killing people, it's like this is how many people you're going to go to the hospital to the ICU, and then when that dropped, it's that you're going to get it, and it's bad. And then when that story dried up, it's like there's another variation, and it might be worse. And I I just feel sorry for everybody that gets their opinion from the newspapers um, because they were fed a lot of 
conflicting information and a lot of misinformation um, during the COVID pandemic. You know, in retrospect, it was really handled poorly by many governments around the world. Well, now we've got the new one coming out, monkeypox. Oh, gee, wasn't right. there and a Right, and you've got to get vaccinated. <laughs> you've got to get right? smallpox vaccination. Uh, but they, they did a tabletop uh, scenario last year where they, they said, all right, this is what the next plague is going to be. It's going to be monkeypox, and this is how many people are going to die from monkeypox. And, gee, lo and behold, exactly to the timetable they predicted is what is happening now. Do you think this was planned? I think it was planned, and uh, you know you, you can't you can't say this virus came from a wet market in Wuhan where there was also a high security um, <laughs> center to bring out the efficacy of uh, viral diseases. I mean, it's just too coincidental. Like, why didn't it come out of a wet market in the Congo? Um, you know, it, it, there's just so much we don't know about it, and so much that's wrong. Well, Derek, it has been a pleasure having you on. Definitely have to have you uh, come back on because there's so much more to talk about. But make sure Quint sends me a copy of your book so I can review and we can go into a lot of this uh, with much more depth. Love it, Annie. And Curtis, thank you for joining in too. And how can people find you? You can find me on Amazon.com. Search for Bullen, B-U-L-L. E-N, and it will bring up my book, In Defense of Wealth, and it's a very fact-based narrative of how the rich make the world more wonderful for all of us. Well, God bless you for the hard work you do, and there is a link on my show page so when people listen to the archives, they can click on it and find out more about you. Thank you, Annie. All right. Enjoy your Memorial Weekend. God bless. All right, Derek Bowen, check him out. Check out the link to his show. We've got my buddy from the uh, Epoch Times, or as I say, Epoch Times, and drives them crazy, Mark Tapscott. Good afternoon, Mark. How are you today? I am fine. Anne, how are you doing? Ah, you sound like your voice is in a fine fiddle today. Or is that just for me? <laughs> we'll see how long that lasts. <laughs> hey, listen, uh, I pulled up an article um, that you wrote <laughs> Just, you know, yesterday, you scared the absolute bejesus out of me because I wasn't really following this. I was catching a little bit by little bit about Biden's 13 who amendments, Uh, the World Health Organization that have this whole big thing going on this past week, uh, the 75th World Health Assembly. Holy moly. Talk about the one social world order being our throats. Talk about a ceding our sovereignty, our freedoms, and our liberties to this organization that has no accountability to anyone but themselves, we shouldn't be scared, should we be? Well, the bottom line is that um, with very little public notice, the uh, Biden administration back in January submitted to the World Health Organization Um, 13 proposed amendments to its governing regulations, which basically are the United Nations regulations. And those 13 uh, proposed amendments all had the effect taken together uh, of significantly increasing the uh, power of the World Health Organization generally and specifically that of the uh, Director General. 
uh, a fellow whose name you may recognize. I can't pronounce his oh, you mean last the name, soup? but the, uh, well, it's Tedros. It's Tedros. I can't pronounce the rest of his name. Yeah. Um, they they sent those over to the World Health Organization in anticipation of its big meeting this week, which is still going on. I think it ends tomorrow. Um, and I think the expectation among the people who lead the World Health Organization and probably the Biden administration as well was that um, there wouldn't be much attention at all devoted to these amendments and they would pass without any problem. And nobody would be the wiser until all of a sudden um, Tedros, as the director general of the World Health Organization, announced unilaterally, as he would be empowered to do by these uh, amendments, uh, announced unilaterally that there was some kind of new uh, public health threat uh, in some nation. So, Gee. yeah, that's that's basically what it comes down to. It gives the director general of the World Health Organization um, virtually unilateral ability to declare a public health emergency in any country in the world. And that's irregardless of whether or not the officials in that particular country uh, agree that, you know, um, there is a situation that merits being declared a pub, uh, public health emergency. So, so just, it's, these are significant amendments, but as I said, they were introduced with virtually no public attention. And then at the... Uh, Four days ago, this this meeting of the World Health Organization that's going on now is a week-long thing. Uh, at the outset of it, in the meeting where the amendments were to be adopted, without warning, uh, a pretty large group of African nations said, wait a minute, what are you doing here? You're moving way too fast. We don't, we don't, we don't know that we like this. And what happened uh, as a result of that is they began basically some backroom negotiations to try to figure out um, a compromise version. And I haven't been able to check today on what the status of that is, but my guess is that uh, they probably were able to come up with some sort of compromise that uh, we will have some difficulty getting the actual text of, but we will get it at some point soon, and it will, I'm sure, uh, increase the power of the World Health Organization, Um, probably not as much as the Biden people and Tedros himself were hoping for. Well, you know, what he's doing, it should be considered a treaty, right? So it will require the advising consent of, of the Senate, but he's bypassing our Constitution. Well, there there are ways that the uh, president can enter into ex- executive agreements um, that don't require, uh, allegedly, don't require Senate advice and consent. In this case, I think it would be it will be very very difficult to make the case that this is the kind of thing that that the founders precisely intended the Senate to have a voice about. 
mm-hmm. but you you know you can be you can be sure that uh, the Biden people will try to avoid a vote in the Senate because the Senate, even the one we have today, I think very likely would vote it down. Yeah, yeah, very likely they would vote it down. You know what is scary is that they say a public health crisis that leaves a broad spectrum open. It doesn't necessarily yes, it does. mean a pandemic such as the Wuhan virus or this monkeypox. Basically, anything can be considered a world health crisis. Oh, gee, shall we point out to recent gun violence? Gee, the Americans mm-hmm. seem to have a lot of that. So we've got to lock down America and take away everyone's guns because it's a public health crisis. This is where we're going if we're not very careful. Well, that's 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 certainly a, um, an easily conceivable situation. The problem for the World Health Organization is, um, number one, they don't have an enforcement mechanism for something like that. Um, you know, the United Nations doesn't have its own independent standing military. Uh, it has to depend on uh, the military contributions of all the member nations. I can guarantee you there's not a member nation that would agree to send its troops to the United States to try to confiscate weapons from oh. private citizens. Talk um, about an uncivil that, war. That ain't going to happen. Yeah, no. that ain't going to happen. Um, and then the second problem is that, um, you know, you, you, even the United Nations has to take into account um, you know, if you if you keep issuing these edicts that everybody ignores, pretty soon it's pretty obvious that, you know, you don't serve any kind of useful purpose and you suddenly, you know, you're just irrelevant. So mm-hmm. they, they have to be careful about this. But then the next thing that they are working on is a, what is, they all say, is a treaty. Uh, a pandemic response treaty whereby all of the nations that signed the treaty would agree to allow the World Health Organization to do these things, such as declare unilaterally a public health emergency and at least conceivably order everybody in America to put the mask back on, go back into quarantine, everybody has to get vaccinated, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's it's, yeah. it's a serious um, serious problem. It is it is an extremely serious problem, and it was one that's going to challenge our, the constitutionality of it because you know sooner or later it's going to be constitutionally challenged. And I was I, I'm always amazed at how much our government wastes money because we provide them, as you write in your article up on uh, the Epoch Times, that we provide more than 150 million in contributions to fund the organization and on average an additional 262 million in annual voluntary funding since 2012 that's a heck of a lot of our dollars almost half a billion dollars it is indeed and you know people have been saying for a long time why are we sending all this money to the united nations without having um any kind of uh, understanding or assurance or way of verifying that it actually gets spent as we intended for it to be. Um, that's, that's, that's a big issue and has been for a long time, and the World Health Organization is 
a, a very, very large recipient of USAID. The World Health Organization cannot function without the U.S. That's all we do. You want to shut them down? Bring us back a conservative president who's going to yank the funding. Bring us back a Congress that has the courage to yank the funding. We shut them right down, right there, one, two, three. But what scares me the most about this is, is that the World Health Organization, Tedros, can declare an emergency anywhere at any time around the world for whatever his or their uh, committee decides it is, but they're using third-party reporting. There's no way to verify the statistics or whatever is in those reports. There's no, no way to vet it at all. And so we don't even know what sort of information they would be using, correct? Am I reading this correctly? No, you're reading it exactly correctly. Um, that, and that's why it is, I think, one of the reasons why liberals and progressives uh, and, you know, the folks that are globalist, the, one of the reasons they love government so much is because government, by definition, has to have bureaucracy. And it's easy if you understand how bureaucracies function to manipulate them in such a way that it does not, it's not immediately obvious what you're doing. Uh, and one of the amendments that the Biden people uh, proposed, the current uh, World Health Organization regulations require an 18-month waiting period before um, amendments like these would go into effect. One of the amendments that they proposed is that that waiting period be slashed to only six months. And, you know, on the face of it, well, sure, that's, that's you know, let's, why not do that? That lets the organization get moving quicker. But it also, on the other hand, reduces the amount of time for um, transparency and accountability and feedback which was one of the points made, interestingly enough, by the African uh, delegates that uh, objected to the amendments uh, earlier in the week. They said, you know, you're moving too fast on this. You know, it, it's a very, very scary piece. And uh, I'm urging everyone to really take a good look at that because this is what our administration is going to allow to have happen. I mean, once we start ceding our sovereignty, it, 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 that's it. That's it. Just Put a fork in it, we're done. You know, we're already doing that to the invasion on our borders. And this is something that's also been written about in the Epic Times just two or uh, three days ago. Um, that we are shelling out $3 million daily for a border wall by building the wall. So where's this money going? That comes over to what, oh, more than a billion dollars a year. Where's that money sitting going? What is it being used for if it's not going to the wall? Well, um, this this is one of those stories that uh, you know I I keep saying to myself I've seen it all in Washington D.C. But then something else like this story comes up. The three billion dollars a year is what the federal government, which means us, uh, is paying contractors to watch more than $350 million worth of concrete and steel and fasteners and other related materials that were to be used in building uh, the wall 
on the southern border, Trump's wall. But of course, Biden, uh, within a couple hours of uh, taking the oath of office and moving into the Oval Office, he canceled Trump's wall. Mm-hmm. And ever since then, all of these materials that had been bought and that are sitting in various places out in uh, West Texas and um, I believe Arizona, uh, they're just sitting there. And Senator Joni Ernst said earlier this week, well, instead of paying $3 million a day to have somebody sit and watch steel sit, why not let states that want to complete the wall, let them have the material to do it? And that makes perfect sense to me. She <laughs> yeah. uh, introduced a bill called but. <laughs> Build It Bill. And, um, you know, there are a number of Republicans that have sponsored it, co-sponsored it. There are actually some Democrats in the Senate that have been talking about, hey, maybe we need to, to finish that wall. So you may see some bipartisan support for this. I I will be very surprised if um, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer allows it to come for a vote. But the point needs to be made. You know, we've got all this material sitting there doing nothing. Why not make good use of it? Uh, that makes common sense, but then again, when has our government ever exhibited common sense? Yeah. <laughs> now, hey, Mark. Uh, yeah, Curtis, how you doing? Yeah, all right. Say, for instance, Biden does turn over, you know, medical um, jurisdiction to the WHO. Is it reversible by the next president if that president so what? wished to overturn it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and in fact, um, regardless of what the president does, Congress always has, if it chooses to, it has the last word. <laughs> I'm glad you said that. I'm glad you said that if it chooses. Congress funds. Congress decides what gets funded. And if Congress doesn't fund it, it ain't going to happen. <laughs> and I've so been saying for years... I've been saying for years that that Congress needs to get serious about not funding things that it doesn't like because, you know, they just kind of look the other way and they spend money on anything and everything, and yeah. we all look around and see the results of that. <laughs> so if we regain the House and the Senate and we decide we're not going to fund any of these things, these proposals from uh, – the Biden administration is just like dead in the water. Well, what it will do? Unless there's a filibuster, I guess. I don't know. Well, there there would be a filibuster if the Republican majority uh, in the Senate uh, started defunding Biden stuff, and you can you can count on that, and you can also count on the New York Times and the Washington Post and all the rest of the liberal media uh, screaming to high heaven that Republicans are, you know, blocking progress or um, uh, trying to shut I down say, the government. Yeah, yeah. I say let them scream. Well, that's, that's, that's my view. I mean, at a certain point, you've got <laughs> to make up your mind and then stick to it, you know. True science. Republicans yeah. are not real good True at that. Science. No, spineless. Let's change the subject just a little bit. There's that we right now we've got this trial going on with Michael Sussman, and I'm not exactly following everything that's happening. As I'm understanding it, 
the key part of the prosecution are the emails that went be- between the attorney, Fusion GPS, and the clients that were turned over to the FBI to be allegedly the link that was the smoking gun to prove Russian Trump collusion. Uh, they're not being uh, allowed as evidence into court. You know, Annie, I'm like you. I have not followed that case, uh, that that trial, um, very closely because I've been preoccupied with Congress. Um, but I have been reading some of the epoch coverage of it, and um, as I understand it, uh, you're you're correct. Uh, at the heart of the case that um, uh, Durham has been presenting are some emails where an FBI expert was asked. Uh, to evaluate the evidence that, or the material that Sussman and another guy presented to the FBI that allegedly said or demonstrated that Trump had uh, a secret bank connection with Russia. And that FBI expert looked at all of that stuff from Sussman and the other guy and said, this looks like a fabrication to me. And, and he said it in an email. That's the email that the judge in the trial, as I understand it, uh, ruled, I believe, yesterday or the day before yesterday, uh, could not be admitted into evidence. And I don't know the legal arguments involved, um, but it seems to me that 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 sounds to me like a pretty questionable ruling and perhaps could be the grounds for um, an appeal by the prosecution if they get a uh, decision that they don't like or that they don't think is honest. <laughs> well, 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 we'll wait and see. Because this is going to be, this is a jury trial. So you never know what a jury is going to do. And that's for, that's for sure. It's always a hit ne- and miss. Never, never forget a jury in the district of Columbia has to, by definition, be, uh, drawn from a population that is 90% Democrat. Yeah. That's why I'm not, I'm not too hopeful. Me, I, <laughs> for the life of me, I, I don't know why Durham didn't try to at least try to get the trial moved to another venue. Um, you know, Midland, Texas or someplace. <laughs> You know, um, we started off the show, Curtis and I, talking about the shooting down in Texas and and the the police response. Uh, They're waiting outside 40 minutes while this guy was still on a rampage inside the school. Um, Do you foresee any sort of an investigation coming out of this to find out what happened and why it happened? Oh, yeah, you can count on it. The the Texas Department of Public Safety and the Texas Rangers uh, are doing an investigation, and I can guarantee you um, the FBI and others will will also do it. Uh, do investigations. We'll find out. Um, that 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 situation is just so sad in so many ways, and from from what we have learned so far, it looks to me like um, this was yet another example of a guy who clearly was giving signals that he was, you know, should should have been under at least um, observation 
Um, yeah. Where, where does an 18-year-old kid, even in Texas, and I'm from Texas, so I know Texas pretty well, mm-hmm. even in Texas, you know, when an 18-year-old kid comes in and buys a couple of thousand dollars worth of ammunition for a rifle he just uh, purchased the day before, that's got to make me wonder what's going on here. Um, but apparently it didn't. So Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny because when I go to buy rounds, I'm normally buying them two, three, four boxes. But to get thousands yeah. upon thousands, you know, that means that he planned this. It was pre, pre-calculated. It was pretty calculated on this one. And what disappoints me is the response of law enforcement. You know, having been in those situations, you know, you don't sit out there with your thumb up your butt. You move. So what if you don't have the shield? So what you're not wearing a vest, you still go in and you move. You don't stand there idly while innocents just get slaughtered like that. And uh, I'm ashamed of that for them. I am really, truly ashamed, honestly. And what's going to come out of that investigation? I think heads are going to roll big time. Yeah. My my understanding, and I could be incorrect about this, but my understanding is during the 40 minutes that they were waiting for quote unquote, um, the guy was simply – barricaded in a room and he was not shooting he wasn't firing um but i but i don't know that for sure i just think that i think that's why i recall um reading mm. but you're right annie it's it, we, there needs to be a credible authoritative investigation to establish the facts and then based on decide what to do in the future and i do not understand spend 40 billion to help oh. Ukraine, and I want Ukraine to win. Your I order, want them to defeat the Russians. When your order is done <laughs> processing, we'll email it. <laughs> Folks, live radio, you can't make this up. <laughs> what was that? I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea where that came from. Uh, Curtis, where did that come from? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Somebody is listening. <laughs> and you wonder how I managed to get myself banned on YouTube. <laughs> I'm going to well, what, I, what, what I was saying was, if we can afford to send Ukraine $40 billion, why can't we afford to put an armed, trained officer in every school? Why can't we yep. arm and train the administrators and the teachers to be the first responders because in that kind of a well, Mark keeps on breaking up. On the city. Yeah, I, you know, there, yeah, I think you... there may be a radio signal interfering with your cell phone. I think that's what what happened there because you keep breaking in and out in the last couple of uh, minutes. Hmm. Well, I'm not looking at my desk. <laughs> You're Very being strong. tapped. You're being tapped. You've got the radio waves coming at you. <laughs> Wouldn't be the first time, Robin. No, it would not. It would not. Oh, man. But you can't make some of this stuff up. So, you know, um, we have Sarge in the uh, chat rooms because when you were talking about how the uh, jury and how D.C. requires the juries to be constructed, he's saying um, what you say. Most juries, what you say on the main is true, but a D.C. jury, it's near a foregone conclusion for an acquittal. 
man, I've never yeah, heard of exactly. anyone requiring the jury to be made up of a certain specific group, requiring a percentage. I've well, never heard of that before. No, no. And it's it's a eligible voters that, that can be called to serve on a jury. And in the District of Columbia, 90% of the registered voters are Democrats. Mm. So, you know, if it's a political trial, you can forget about getting a uh, jury that's not uh, that's that's going to be evenly balanced because uh, you just can't do it in the District of Columbia. Well, he's he's uh, saying that with a, a press conference today, a DPS official said the children were calling 911, saying that they were alive while the offender was barricaded in the room. These children appear to have been subsequently killed after those communications. The 911 yeah, operator apparently either did not inform them on the scene, inform the commander, or he ignored this information. I can't imagine anyone actually ignoring that information. I can't either. Well, yeah. you know, don't draw, don't draw hasty conclusions. Let's, let's get all the facts. Well, Mark, will you enjoy your Memorial Weekend as we remember those who gave their lives for us this Monday? And we'll talk to you again in two weeks. Thank you. All right. All right. Mark Tapscott, check him out over at the Epoch Times, or as I say, the Epic Times. And we've got our final victim in the studio for today, my favorite over here, Hans von Spakovsky of the Heritage Foundation. Good afternoon, Hans. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back, and uh, happy Memorial Day. Yeah, same to you. Um, I got to tell you, I was reading some of your stuff up on the uh, Heritage Foundation, heritage.org people, uh, and I had a laugh because as I was starting to blast out information for the show and setting it up for the video, and I get a pop-up on YouTube saying that I've been <laughs> I've been axed. <laughs> Too many strikes. So, I, and then I came across your article about that, and I had to laugh. I said, "I made the grade. I'm not allowed to post anything up on YouTube until April 19th." <laughs> I did it. I done doed it. <laughs> well, I'm not surprised if if you'd sent out a um, if you'd sent out something saying you're going to have me on the show, that that would have made them uh, pull you down too. So, you know. Uh, well, I hadn't even posted it yet. Had not even posted it. They said that the pre- three previous shows were pulled down for misinformation. Okay. <laughs> Whatever. I'm enjoying this. I've made the grade. I'm someone. <laughs> uh, now, you're the manager of the Election Law Reform Initiative over at Heritage. And... Um, uh, I, I found some interesting things coming up with the election uh, reform initiative, but I don't know how familiar you are with what we just passed here in South Carolina. We were discussing that earlier. Uh, I know that you all have, you passed a, a fairly big um, reform package. Uh, and I, frankly, I was just starting to look at it in my office, literally when um, uh, the, the Heritage actually shut down early today for the Memorial Day weekend, but I'm going to look at it more closely Tuesday. I did see that 
that, for example, you all did, um, I think, pass uh, a partial blocking of what everybody calls Zuck bucks, um, private mm-hmm. money going to election officials in the state, which, right. is, uh, which is a good thing. Right. Yeah. The, the Zuck bucks are out. Um, they've reduced the ability for people to harvest ballots because originally it was a person can harvest eight ballots at a time. And there's right. no there was no restriction on how many times they could do it. They've now restricted that required a government issued ID, especially with an absentee ballot. Um, they extended the voting early voting hours to allow more people to, the ability to get to the polls. Uh, I'm trying to think of all the other stuff because I had uh, some friends of mine and part of my county uh, GOP, which I'm an executive board member on, worked very, very diligently with uh, Shane Massey up in uh, Columbia and others to craft this legislation. I mean, our county here in Beaufort County, South Carolina, was at the forefront of this charge. Uh, but there, there's a lot of good things they did. Made sure that the uh, election boxes are untethered from any access to the Internet, either Wi-Fi or any other ways. They're absolutely no access, so they cannot be tampered with. Um, each precinct must have 10% of the polling places audited randomly, uh, and everything's checked because it's a touchscreen gives you a printout, you look at the printout, you verify that's your vote, it goes into a scanner. So you can compare the paper ballot to the electric uh, box. And if they don't match, then we got a problem. But so far, we've been pretty good. And that's a lot of, some of the, a lot of things that we did. Yeah. Well, that, that all sounds great and uh, clearly is an improvement on uh, the way elections are conducted. Uh, the, I mean, all those, all those items you, you mentioned are important, but the most important one is extending ID requirements to absentee ballots. Um, you, you know, uh, all you have to do is look across the state line to North Carolina and what happened there four years ago uh, yeah. in the ninth congressional district race to know that, you know, absentee ballots are often the ballots targeted by people who want to steal elections uh, and everything you can do to increase the security of those uh, is a good thing. And that, and that it certainly extends to having an ID requirement for absentee ballots. Because, look, it makes no sense to say, hey, if you show up at a polling place, you got to show an ID so we can ensure you're really the, the, the registered voter. But then to say, oh, absentee ballots, well, we're not going to worry about it that there. You know, oh, oh, the other thing we did was um, you have to purge the uh, voter, voter rolls. It's being compared against DMV as well as uh, death notices. So the voter rolls every year must be purged. So now you found uh, a couple of cases where people were voting in two different states, one by absentee ballot and one by in person. This would eliminate that uh, because now if you turn around and you move from South Carolina and go, say, for example, to Florida, within a certain time period, you must get a new driver's license or or government ID, which means you've got to turn your old one in which then notifies us that this person is now a resident of Florida and not South Carolina, you get purged off the roll. And yeah, it that's, just that's makes really, sense. That's really important. Yeah, it's really important. We, as you well know, because we've talked about it, we maintain an election fraud database at the Heritage Foundation that's got proven cases of fraud. We just added about a half dozen cases, um, uh, four of which, 
are people who got caught um, registered in voting in two different states. Um, you know, what's interesting about that, that those cases are that uh, in in two of the instances, it was vote. It was folks who voted both in Florida and also in their home states of Michigan, and uh, I think it was Connecticut. Um, but it tells you how much better a job Florida is doing than either Michigan or Connecticut. That you know, who discovered this double voting? Election officials in Florida, not election officials in Michigan or or Connecticut. And uh, you know what you talked, what you said about checking death records is also important because two of the cases that we added out of Arizona were individuals who voted in the names of their deceased mothers. And fortunately, there it was caught. But look, there are many states where that kind of thing doesn't get caught because they don't do a good job of actually checking death records in their states. And, you know, we're, we may be at the forefront. You know, it's these red states that are finally saying, hey, enough, let's just check yeah. our election yeah. backs. But <clears throat> no, no, what, what we're doing is voter suppression. Didn't you know that? <laughs> and, <laughs> well, and, well, yeah, but, but, but I'm sure you saw uh, that the results in the Georgia primary election that they just had is making all the people who said, oh, the big election reform efforts in Georgia were Jim Crow t- uh, 2.0. Well, those people are now eating crow because <laughs> they had a huge, huge increase in turnout in the state, not just in the Republican primary, but also in the Democratic primary, and the Secretary of State reported times as many black residents of the state of Georgia voted as in the prior 2018 midterm election. So uh, this huge increase in turnout just shows that all those claims that were being made were totally bogus and were nothing more than partisan political propaganda. Mm. Yeah, it, it is amazing. It is absolutely amazing because what you have there is just a sampling of stuff that has been proven to be fraud, and that's over 1,300 cases that you have been able yes. to document. And But that's just a small sampling. And just imagine how much more is out there that has not been sampled. You know, that is you know, some scary stuff out there. Well, it is. And, you know, one of the biggest problems in this area is that, is that even when it is discovered, all too often local district attorneys aren't willing to do anything about it. And, 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 a, and a graphic example of that is that um, the Public Interest Legal Foundation, which is a nonprofit uh, group that pushes for election integrity, you know what they did recently? They sent a um, public records request to the 10 biggest counties in Florida, and they asked for all criminal referrals by county mm-hmm. election officials who found election fraud to the local DAs related to the 2020 election. Nine of the 10 counties came back and said, oh, well, we sent 156 criminal referrals of election fraud to our local DAs. The Public Interest Legal Foundation then checked court records and checked with those DAs' offices. Not a single one of those criminal referrals was investigated or prosecuted by local election officials. Not one. Um, and the 10th county that never got back to them uh, with any of their criminal referrals did send them back a letter saying, oh, 
Well, even when we find election fraud, we never make a criminal referral to law enforcement. <laughs> it, is, it does. Isn't it's like that unbelievable? It's hitting your head against a brick wall. <laughs> yes. But, you know, something else you wrote about, and this really also scares me, President Biden's plan, the equity action plan. Right. All right. First off, that's a mouthful. And what the heck is he thinking? Why don't you just completely rip up our Constitution? Well, because he's. Because he's surrounded by radical leftists, uh, this equity plan. Here, here's what happened. Um, Joe Biden issued an executive order telling all executive branch departments, so everybody from Department of Justice to uh, the Commerce Department, Department of Education, I want you to come up with an equity action plan for your department, the purpose of which is to make sure that all actions that you take and all benefits you pay out are done on an equitable basis. When you dig into what they mean by that, and when you look at the actual plans that all these departments have come up with, what they're talking about is a racial quota and racial spoils system. Uh, The Department of Justice, for example, has put out a plan that says that when they're making decisions about investigations, prosecutions, how much punishment to ask for, who they're going to give DOJ grants to, they're going to take into account people's race, ethnicity, gender, sexual preferences, and whether they live in what they call historically underserved communities. What all this means, as you well know, is it gives government bureaucrats a license to discriminate in the payment of benefits and even to discriminate in the administration of justice. It is, it is just shocking that something like this is going on, something that, by the way, violates our civil rights laws. And it, it, it tells you everything you need to know about this by the fact that uh, when these equity plans uh, came out and were released by the administration, you know who was the biggest uh, group to praise them as just being wonderful? Black Lives Matters. George Soros founded, funded, right? Yes. Yeah. So, in other words, let's let's forget that we even have a constitution. Let's even forget we had groundbreaking civil rights legislation that was passed right. back in the sixties and seventies. Uh, forget that we also had the affirmative action uh, legislation uh, to try to guarantee everyone, you know, equal. Well, actually, it didn't. It did, it did the exact opposite of what it should have been doing. Um, so let's let's just forget about equal protection under the law. Toss everything out the window, and right. just let's why don't we just surrender? Yeah, I mean that is exactly what they're doing. They're trying to put in a racially discriminatory um, executive branch uh, plan. That uh, if this if this goes through and is, um, is implemented will guarantee that uh, any time you deal with the federal government, you can expect them to discriminate either against you or in favor, depending on everything from the color of your skin to who it is, I mean, I hate to say it this way, to who it is you prefer to sleep with. I mean, literally, that's, that's what they're saying they're, they're going to do. And it is, look, it's not just that it's, 
illegal, uh, discriminatory, and frankly immoral. But it means that um, taxpayers are going to be paying more money because it's going to be wasteful of their taxpayer funds. Because this means that, for example, with government contracting, uh, instead of a bid going to the lowest bidder who can actually do the work, they instead uh, for, uh, would go to someone who bid a lot higher. Why? Well, because the owners of the company are gay or the owners of the company uh, perhaps are black or Hispanic um, as opposed to the company that actually did the best bid being low, uh, being white or maybe even Asian, which they don't these days, they don't have any problem discriminating against. And that's not the way government should be run. Like I said, it's illegal and immoral and it's a waste of taxpayer money. Well, now, is there going to be a department to administer this or is this going to be by department by department, each one coming up with their own version of the plan? Yeah, that, it's each department, and they've already done it. Um, uh, there are tw- 25 plans have been um, uh, put together by all of these uh, different major federal agencies, and they are now in the process of implementing these plans as as we speak. You know, that's, that's, that's crazy because some of the departments is Department of Agriculture, Defense, Education, Energy, Justice, Transportation, Treasury, uh, I mean, every one of them, every one of them has a so-called equity action plan, uh, all the ones you just named. And the National Science Foundation. Now, how do you separate, how do, how do you include something like that into science? I thought science was facts, not, not oh, but, but touchy look, feeling. You and I both know. Look, you and I both know. Look, look, at, look at the way the Centers for Disease Control. The CDC. Look at look at how they totally politicized their decision making over COVID in the past two years. You know, the CDC is supposed to be driven by science, by by actual uh, consideration of medical results and testing. And all, but but we we all know, looking at the way they behaved, that that did not happen. That instead they made political decisions on uh, the entire treatment and every aspect of, of COVID. And that shows you how that has infected it. Um, I, I can tell you that I, someone in my family uh, uh, who's, who's not in the political field but does get involved with the National Science Foundation and the grants program there, and they've already been corrupted into uh, considering the race, gender, and ethnicity of individuals who are applying to, to them for grants from the National Science Foundation, not on the merits of whatever the research is that they want to do. Well, you know, as I was going through your article, it also has been implemented in the Veterans Administration and Social Security, which means if you happen to be Christian, conservative, gun owner, white, uh, you can kiss your Social Security or veteran benefits goodbye because you don't have the right gender preference, whatever, you just don't fit into their, their preferred niche. Right. No, that's, that's exactly right. Look, they even have a phrase. I've never even heard, heard of it. They just created it. Um, in the Justice Department's plan in which 
uh, when they're giving out grants, and the Justice Department has a lot of money that they're given by Congress to give out in grants to, to example, it's supposed to be going to local you know, police departments, people like that. They're now going to take, take into account what they call culturally sensitive organizations. Now, what in the world does that mean? Um, that can be anything that a bureaucrat wants it to mean, which, again, means you're getting rid of all of the rules that are supposed to govern grant making at the Justice Department and saying to bureaucrats, you can discriminate as much as you want and award uh, uh, grants to the people that we think should get it because of partisan, political, and racial reasons. No, this is this is this is so so scary, but it hopefully it'll, it will be challenged uh, legally. Do you do you foresee that happening? The second someone is denied their benefit or grant based upon the fact yes, they're that, not that's the right. going to be the key. Yes, yeah. that's going to be the key to this. The first time someone or an organization who has applied for a grant and meets all the requirements, but they're denied a grant for these kind of discriminatory reasons, they will then have a cause of action to sue, and hopefully uh, hopefully they will do that. Well, you can tell Bill Pan, uh, Pan that I read his article here on air, of course, definitely citing him, about State Farm and these transgender books. Holy cow. Oh. I mean... Yeah. But that's, that's, part of this. that's part of this whole push. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like a, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Yeah, right. That's the type of neighbor I don't want next door, <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah, no, right. I agree. All right, well, we only have a couple of minutes left, and I wanted to talk about Ted Cruz and his First Amendment win. Uh, people don't realize just how important this was. What's the background, and what is the key takeaway on this? Ted Cruz challenged this kind of bizarre um, federal campaign finance rule um, that, had reg- that, that was relevant to loans made by a candidate to his campaign. Um, look, political campaigns can borrow money. Um, they can borrow money from banks. Uh, they can borrow money from the candidate. And the campaign then, of course, is supposed to pay it back so it's not seen as a big you know, donation. Um, but they have this weird rule that says um, – that after the election is over, the campaign can't pay back more than $250,000 to a candidate. Uh, Ted Cruz lent his campaign $260,000. The campaign paid him back $250,000, but he was out $10,000. So he went to court saying, look, there's no justification for this. Um, I've got a First Amendment right. Uh, to engage in political speech, and political speech in campaigns takes what? It takes money, right? It takes money to buy mm-hmm. ads, to rent a ballroom, to speak, all, all those kind of things. Anyway, um, the government tried to argue that, no, no, if you pay back more than 250000 it 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 brings up the appearance of corruption, and people might contribute to a campaign after Election Day so they can get a a, a favor from the candidate. Well, the court, the Supreme Court said, um, well, if that's the justification for it, why does it, why does it apply to losing candidates? Because obviously a losing candidate can't 
give any kind of special government favor uh, to someone uh, who makes a contribution to this campaign. Uh, furthermore, um, states in their state election laws don't have these kind of limits on the amount that can be paid back. And the court pointed out that the government was a, unable to find a single case anywhere in the country, in any state, of corruption caused by a, um, uh, a campaign paying back a candidate. And so they threw out this rule. Let me tell you why this is important. This is important because who is it that usually has a tough time starting up a campaign, a tough time raising money? It's not incumbents. It's challengers. And so the, the fastest way for a challenger to try to get a campaign going is to lend his own money or her own money to their own campaign, hoping that down the road as their campaign gains ground, they'll get paid back. So who was it this, this rule protected? Incumbents. And it hurt people that are trying to go against the establishment and, and challenge the people who are in office. So this is a good thing for the First Amendment, and it's a good thing. But the grassroots and people who want, to, who want to say, you know, I don't like what my member of Congress is doing. I'm going to run against them. Mm-hmm. No, basically what Ted Cruz said was, well, you know, I am the incumbent. I can benefit from this rule. However, I'm going to stand up for the people that voted me in, those that I represent, and defend their right to challenge me. That takes guts and courage. Yes. It is. No, that's exactly what he did, and it was uh, just a terrific win, not just for Ted Cruz, but really for all of us and the freedom that we have under the First Amendment to engage in political speech and political activity. Well, you know, you always got your, your, your finger on the radar. Anything we, you should be looking out for coming up lately? Well, look, you know, we're all waiting for the uh, Supreme Court ends June 30th. We're waiting for Mm -hmm. a whole bunch of uh, remaining decisions. We know that the abortion decision is going to come out. But uh, keep in mind, there's also a big Second Amendment case before the Supreme Court that's going to determine uh, how restrictive states like New York can be in refusing to issue concealed carry permits. Very important case Mm -hmm. for the Second Amendment. We're waiting for that one, too. Now, I also understand uh, they appointed a army uh, colonel, uh, a female army colonel, to do the investigation into the Supreme Court leak. I understand she's, she runs a very tight ship, and if anything, anyone will get to the truth, she should be able to do that. Is that what you're hearing too? Yeah, I mean, I hope that is true, because what happened at the court is just shocking and outrageous. And the individual, I assume it's a law clerk for one of the liberal justices, whoever did this mm-hmm. um, needs to be disbarred and never allowed to practice law again. Because what they did was uh, unethical and the, one of the worst violations of the professional code of conduct that governs lawyers that you can imagine. Yeah. Well, we're down to our last five minutes, Hans. It's always a pleasure to have you on here. And anytime Tom tells me he's sending you over, I'm like, yes, all right. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's always so much fun to speak with you. And you know I try to stay on top of the ball and keep up with you. <laughs> Don't always make well, it, yeah, but... And you do. No, you do. So I appreciate you inviting me back. All right. Well, enjoy your Memorial Day weekend, and God bless you for the hard work you do for all of us, Hans. Thanks. See you later. Bye-bye. All right. Hans von Spakovsky. Check him out over at heritage.org. Curtis, wow, we managed to get through the debacle that was today's show. <laughs> but we may oh, have yeah, another can't, can't wait till next week. We, we can share some birthday cake. <laughs> 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 
Ah, uh, okay. All right. I mean, I, I, that was funny. I'd love to know whether or not that person got their order. <laughs> it must have cut into his, his, his signal on his cell phone. That was just too funny. Yeah. Well, I'll leave everyone with the uh, uh, thoughts to please remember Monday. Take even just a few moments just to remember those who gave their lives for us, for our freedoms. And let's fighting and not let their lives go in vain. Um, they gave us the ability to fight for our freedoms and our liberties. So until then, we will see you next week or we're lining up uh, people for next week. And I'll leave you with my friend, Gary Pecorella, and save America. So good night and God bless. That was the wrong one. The cat jumped on my lap just as I was clicking it. Here we go. I'm free.